This is Jocko Podcast number 139 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I lived a while on Corregidor Isle, that sun-baked God-cursed land where bomb and shell made life a hell with death on every hand. I got the thirst there of the cursed with no water to be had. I heard men scream in hellish dreams and watched my friends go mad. Tis no man's fault, the water, salt, or that the food is gone. The guns are manned by men full damned facing each new dawn. And when our bones blend with the stones, you'll hear the parrots cry. The men who owned these splintered bones were not afraid to die. And that is a poem written on the back of a scrap of paper postmarked prisoner of war mail. March 1943, the note was addressed to James D. Culp, U.S. Navy, gunner's mate, first class, via his wife from the Red Cross while he was in a prisoner of war camp in Osaka, Japan, and the author is unknown. So it wasn't written by James D. Culp, it was sent to James D. Culp. The author is unknown, but is assumed to be one of Culp's fellow prisoners that was captured on the Philippine island of Corregidor. And the fall of the Philippines in World War II resulted in an absolutely horrific event that resulted in the deaths of thousands of American and Filipino service members and there's not any great records of how many actually died in this terrible situation but throughout the prisoner of war camps of the Japanese in World War two the death rate was about 40% it was a nightmare and this is this is about the Bataan Death March. And we've heard a little bit about what the Japanese did to prisoners of war in World War II. We, we read The Forgotten Highlander by Alistair Ucart, and that was podcast number 12. And he didn't talk about the Bataan Death March, but today we're going to hear from someone that did the Bataan Death March. A guy by the name of James Bolick, a young member of the Army Air Corps who suffered through that terrible situation and wrote a book about it. The book is called A Soldier's Journal by James Bolick. And let's get right into it. Go into the book. I joined the service. August 23rd, 1940, at Barksdale Field, Shreveport, Louisiana. 
and was assigned to the 16th Bomb Squadron, 27th Bomb Group. I joined because Paris had just fallen to the Germans and I felt we would soon be at war. I was in college at the time and just finished my third semester. All the talk around school was about war and it was hard to keep my mind on books. I was attending Southwestern Louisiana Institute in Lafayette through a government program called the NYA, the National Youth Administration. We received $30 a month and had to work a full eight hours every other day. Because of this, it was hard to schedule classes and hard to study properly. From our $30 pay, we had to put about $18 each month for room and board, which left $12 for other essentials such as books, paper, pencils, etc. Because going to college was so difficult under these circumstances, it seemed that the Army could not be any worse. So, going to join the Army. I went home and told my parents what I planned to do. My mother was horrified and strictly against it. At the time, I needed my parents' consent to join because of my age. I was 19. My father agreed to sign and convinced my mother to sign also. I remember her saying that if anything happened to me, she did not want to be blamed for letting me go in the army. I was sworn in with the rest of the recruits. I had a choice of joining a weather squadron or a bombardment squadron. Of course, I chose the bombardment squadron. I did not join the army to study the weather. I joined to fight. That is what I thought. I was therefore assigned to the 16th Bomb Squadron of the 27th Bomb Group. Army clothes and equipment at this time were in short supply and were not provided and we were not provided with clothes, etc. for quite some time. Obviously, my statement that I always make is I'm skipping big chunks of this book and reading some of the highlights so you get the flow of the story before we get into the meat of the book. It's a it's a great book. It's a relatively short read, but it's a great book. Back to the book. The clothing we had was essentially still World War One. We had leggings, campaign hats, etc. at this time. And then he ends up going to a school to learn his skills about bombing. Back to the book. The school lasted about nine months, and I came out knowing everything there was to know about an airplane. When school was over for my class, I was offered a position as instructor of drafting, but I turned it down. I wanted to get back with my outfit, and his outfit was down in Savannah. When I got back to Savannah, I found out my I found my outfit packing up to go on maneuvers in Louisiana. Within a few days, we were we were on our way by army truck. At night, we would stop, set up our mess tent, eat, and hit the sack. We slept on the ground under a pup tent. It took us three or two or three days to reach our final stop, which was at the airfield at Lake Charles. Here we lived in tents, again just as our first days in Savannah. As far as I was concerned at the time, maneuvers were a joke. Instead of having actual machine guns, anti-aircraft guns, foxholes, etc., there were wooden signs all around to indicate these. If the air raid siren went off, we were supposed to run out to one of these signs. The way that one of the maneuvers did apparently help us with down the line was to adapt to hard, rough outdoor living. We were also on reduced rations, which helped prepare us for what was to come later on. We would fly over the enemy and drop small sacks of flour on them. Referees could tell if we hit or missed, and the sides were scored accordingly. I don't remember how long these maneuvers lasted, 
but it seems like it was at least a month. So they're out there. I I've thought this was interesting because we do dumb stuff like that sometimes in the military where, well, you think it's dumb, but what you're really trying to do is get the broad muscle movements of a military organization working. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, because it's not easy to get 500 men assembled and moved to a location that it takes practice. And so that they just run people through planning and training exercises that you're just trying to get these broad muscle movements, even though for the troops on the ground sometimes, I remember sometimes I'd be thinking, this is ridiculous, this is so unrealistic, but we weren't training the the frontline troops. What they were training was the logistics of this giant scenario. So that's kind of what they're doing here. Back to the book, we finally got word to pack up and headed back home to Savannah. We'd already gotten word that as soon as we reached Savannah, we would need to pack again this time to go overseas, but no one knew where as yet. So again, Germany, France had fallen to Germany, or Paris had fallen to Germany, but we weren't in the war yet. So this is pre-World War II for America at this time. So he's just thinking he's going on a regular kind of deployment at this point. Back to the book, when we reached Savannah, we found that most of our gear that we had left behind was already crated and ready to go. As I recall, in about a week or so, we boarded the train for San Francisco. All of our crates were stenciled with the letter letters P-L-U-M, plum, but no one knew what it meant. I should mention here that before we left Savannah, I was called to the first sergeant's office and told that I did not have to go overseas if I did not want to. Of course, I immediately rejected the idea and said I definitely wanted to go. To this day, I don't know why this came up because in talking to others in my outfit, no one had had that opportunity. Since I had applied for flight school, it may be that I could have gone there. So he had, I didn't mention this part, but he wanted to be a pilot, so it could have been a possibility that they wanted to send him to flight school. But of course, like many young 19-year-old men, what you want to do is you want to stick with your unit, you want to go and fight, and at this point, he doesn't know he's fighting, but he wants to go deploy with his guys. Back to the book. I still don't know what plum stood for, but looking back now, apparently the P stood for Philippines, the L stood for the island of Luzon, But the U and M, I do not know. (laughs) That's awesome. Now they get to San Francisco eventually, and here we go. They're boarding the ship. Back to the book. The SS Coolidge was a lovely ship that normally carried civilian passengers to the Orient. But now it was being used to transport troops. We did not have staterooms, but slept in quarters comparable to regular army transports. About the third day, we found out where we were going. Up to this time, no one knew. Our squadron commander called us together and told us we were headed for the Philippine Islands. He told us that we were the first part of an expeditionary force being sent out to beef up the defenses of the Philippines. After this talk, I don't remember anyone getting very excited about it. We all went back to killing time and doing things that we were doing before. Some people read, some gambled, and some exercised. There was light boxing going on, so I decided I would participate. I boxed as a lightweight at 165 pounds. And I mentioned the 165 pounds because that weight is going to go away. Honolulu is a place where I finally learned the port and starboard sides of a ship. On large ships, I still get lost and confused. I had to go out on deck to see which way the boat was traveling to locate myself. This is funny. When you get first get on a ship, you have no idea where you are. And there's a, oh, there's a system in a ship that you can use to figure out, and they mark, well, Navy ships, they mark it very clearly, but it takes a little time to get used to, and apparently he didn't get taught. <laughs> we finally left the dock, and we, as we pulled out of Pearl Harbor, Saw the ships with our planes coming in. We never saw our planes again 
and little did we realize what would happen to Pearl Harbor in just a few short weeks. So this is pre-Pearl Harbor. So they they set sail, they're out at sea, back to the book. One morning when I got up and went out on deck, I noticed islands all around us. We were finally in the Philippines. Just as soon as we got off the ship, we loaded into army trucks and were taken to Fort McKinley. I should point out here that during the peacetime, I like this part, I should point out here that during peacetime in the Philippines, prior to our arrival, the military was on duty only in the morning from eight o'clock to 11 o'clock. It was thought that a white person could not survive in tropical sun after 11 o'clock. What a deal they had, and to top it off, time spent in the tropics, Hawaii included, counted as time and a half toward retirement. Another reason we were so hot is when we first arrived in the tropics was the fact that we still had our winter uniforms. So I thought that was that was pretty funny to think about that. That's not that, this is 1940s, they're thinking, look, you're not gonna make it. Hey, listen up, white boy, you're not gonna make it past 11, you need to go back in the shade. Back to the book. As long as I was at Fort McKinley, about two weeks, the only thing I ever did was dig trenches around the fort. These were not foxholes, but long zigzag trenches. We were undoubtedly preparing for war. Then they go out, they go out, they catch a movie, and back to the book. After the movie, we took a tram or trolley back to the gate at Fort McKinley. Before going to our tent, we decided to stop at the mess tent for something to drink before retiring, and that is when we heard that Pearl Harbor was being bombed by the Japanese. This message came from a radio that was playing in a mess tent, and I suspect we were one of the first to hear the news. I was not terribly surprised or concerned because we'd been preparing for war, and now it was here. I was not frightened by the news and remember going to bed and immediately falling asleep because the hour was very late. I know I would have been frightened if I had known what terrible destruction the Japanese had inflicted on our forces at Pearl Harbor. We never knew about our terrible losses until the war was over. I am sure our top brass knew, but we were never told, which I am sure was best. I may not have been scared the night when I heard that the war started, but I would be lying if I said I was not scared when the second night rolled around. The day started with an early frantic call before breakfast for all to immediately assemble in front of the first sergeant's tent. I had a pretty good idea of what it was all about, but most of the outfit had not yet heard. Anyway, we were told we were now at war with Japan and would be issued arms and ammunition. So just like that, everything changes. I was issued a 30 caliber Springfield rifle and a 45 caliber Colt automatic pistol. Since we were Air Corps personnel, we had never received instructions on firing a rifle. And a lot of these men had never had a rifle in their hands before. A lot were like me, however. They were farm boys who were brought up with guns and knew how to use them. So, again, these guys, it's a peacetime. And even though they might have been preparing for war, it's a peacetime situation. And you know how I talk about when you're training in jiu-jitsu, you can't train hard enough yeah. to be prepared for a car. You can't train the same way a competition feels. You just yeah. you just can't. It's the same way here. It, when there's no war going on, I don't care how much you're trying to simulate it, if there's no war going on, you can't simulate it well enough. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the situation that they were in. Guys hadn't even, some of the guys had never even shot a rifle before. This doesn't take long to escalate at all back to the book that night we all retired to our tents early because a total blackout was in effect 
it really made no difference to us because we had no lights in the tents anyways all of a sudden around midnight or so there was a loud whistling and everyone outside uh, loud whistling on the outside by our first sergeant the whistling followed by shouts of everyone up everyone up air raid we could hear air raid sirens in the background so we were sure it was the real thing a lot of guys were up and dressed and out in minutes but a lot of guys were slow and lagging around they figured it was a dry run so why hurry once out of the tents we were told to go to the edge of the jungle nearby and get away from our tents because they would undoubtedly become a great target for the enemy everyone did as he was told but before long there was grumbling and people wanted to go back to bed eventually we were given the order to return to our tents needless to say we were ready once back in the dark tents we got out of our clothes and before long everyone was sound asleep again I'm not sure how long we were asleep but sometime later that night we were awakened by horrendous sounds the likes of which we had never heard before great explosions were going on all around us and the ground was shaking as if an earthquake was taking place brilliant flashes of light could be seen through the thick canvas of our tents by now our first sergeant was out again yelling for all to head for the jungle again this time there were no stragglers a lot of the guys just took off in their underwear some had pants no shirt some shirt but no pants I managed to get clothes on and untied shoes before leaving our tent but once outside I was stunned for a while by what I heard and saw the sky was filled with bursting anti-aircraft fire and tracer bullets could be seen headed up in all directions the sound of straining aircraft could also be heard intermingled with the rumbling sound of exploding bombs it looked like the world was coming to an end so that's two days to go from hey we're going to a movie and we're, we're hanging out in the Philippines drinking some beers to this mm. that's 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 completely insane to think about war had now come to us with a bang and it was real Again, fast forwarding, when we received word to pull out of Lipa, which is where they were, the reason given was that the Japanese had landed a few miles from us. And if we did not get out of there in a hurry, we might be overrun. So think about that. You know, here you are, you're American, you got the strongest military, you come from this giant country, and all of a sudden, the Japanese, who you weren't even at war with five days ago, four days ago, now they're landing on beach and you're under the threat of being overrun. I look back now and think that the real story was that the Japs landed in force and they, our commanders, wanted all of us evacuated to the Bataan Peninsula as quickly as possible. So they move, they march, they end up in Bataan, they no longer have tents, and they're living basically outside in little shelters that they're building and they're starting to get bombed all the time here we go back to the book bombs frighten the devil out of me I figured there was no way I could survive so many close calls day after day there was many there was many a day when bombs fell within 20 or 30 feet of me and eventually some much closer if it had not been for strategically located foxholes I know I would not be here today so these guys are getting just crushed because I didn't mention this part but uh, you remember when he said when he when they left Pearl Harbor they saw the ships with their planes on them the planes never showed up they got bombed in Pearl Harbor so they had like just a few planes that had already been there in the Philippines they didn't have an actual war load out of planes so the Japanese had total air superiority and that's why they were able to just bomb them with with complete unrestricted violence 
back to the book during a bombing raid I would normally peep over the edge of my foxhole to see where the planes were at first all you knew was that they were headed in your direction and you had better stay put as they got closer and closer you could tell better if they were going to pass to the side of you or if they were coming directly over you remember that you remember the book we we read where I where it builds up with the heavies coming mm-hmm. they the big slow the roar it's Ernie Pyle and he's talking about how the big slow roar is coming and he looks up and he sees it's the heavies mm. and how the guys were just so happy that the bombers were coming the, the big allied American bombers were coming to give them support well this is the opposite this is what it's like to be on the ground and the heavies are coming the Japanese bombers are coming here we go back to the book if they were directly overhead you began to sweat because that mean meant you were about to take a pounding as you watch the planes you could all of a sudden see many small flashes of silver appear just below the planes this meant that their bombs had been dropped and they were on their way down these silver flashes were only visible for a few seconds then disappeared if you were still looking up the next thing you saw and now heard were these large black objects coming at you with a terrible hissing sound in a fraction of a second they were exploding with a terrific bang as they hit the ground they did not go off simultaneously but one at a time until they had all exploded if the bombs were just in front of you you could hear them getting closer and closer and that was the scary part it wasn't until you could hear the explosives go past you that you knew you were safe and could now relax that's when you thanked God for foxholes so we've talked about similar before with people being in the trenches in World War one I. I think it was Bobby Hoffman or Bob Hoffman that was talking about in his book I remember the last war where when they would get mortared or hit with artillery that's how artillery works you fire around then you move a little to the left then you fire around then you move a little to the left then you fire around and then you move a little to the left and so you knew you could feel it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer and until it goes by you you're waiting to get blown up you're waiting to die and that's exactly what he's talking about here back to the book besides bombs and enemy strafing there was another danger coming from the air it was the hot whistling metal fragments raining down on us from our own anti-aircraft guns at Corregidor so Corregidor is not co-located with them and Corregidor is firing anti-aircraft and some of the fragments from all that fire is raining down on these guys it wasn't long before our food supply was practically gone and we had to scrounge around to find something to eat we eventually ate all of our horses that belonged to the cavalry and the mules that were used to pull their cannons so they ran out of food very quickly although we were air corps we were ultimately designated as infantry and carried on and fought as such when the front lines were active, we could always hear the roar of cannons being fired and the noise of the resulting explosions. Many a night I fell asleep listening to this noise, and especially during the last few weeks and days of our struggle. With this noise getting closer and closer as the front lines fell back, I never in my wildest dreams felt that we would be defeated. We were tired, hungry, and in many cases sick, but we were still ready to fight. So. 
let me just break that down a little bit there's infantry soldiers up that are closer to the enemy that are fighting and they can hear that fighting taking place and they're back by you know in their airfield area trying to well they're holding security but they're basically around an airfield and the, the infantry soldiers from the army are further away to the front and they can hear day after day that front line is getting closer and closer and closer to where they are because the Japanese are pushing them back and back and back mm. and it ends up like this this is scary back to the book one day stray soldiers started appearing at our airstrip and this surprised me because I had never seen this before in talking to them they said they had left the front line looking for food they were being constantly bombarded by Japanese guns and no food was getting to them. It was either go out and look for food or starve to death. So now, eventually, the guys that are, were out fighting the Japanese on the front line, now the stragglers starting to come back to the airfield because they're starving. One day we got word to gas up the last P-40s that we had, three as I recall, and get them ready for takeoff. We pulled them out of their hiding place in the jungle and down to the field where the pilots were waiting. Normally the pilots wanted to jump in and take off immediately before the Japs saw them, but this time it was different. They said they were leaving Bataan and going to a field on one of the islands to the south, which was still in friendly hands. Before the pilot got in his plane, he asked me and a friend of mine if we wanted to send a message home. We said yes because it was the first opportunity that we had had to do so since leaving the States. He had a pencil and I wrote a short note letting everyone know at home that I was well. When the last of our planes left, that was the beginning of the end. It may have been the same day or the day after we were hurriedly taken back into camp and told to pack up. We were told only to bring the bare essentials, the clothes and shoes that we had on, toothbrushes, etc., nothing else. So you know you're in a bad way when the planes are taken off and the guy's saying, hey, you want me to pass a message home because we're not coming back. And then to get told, hey, take just the clothes on your back, basically, we're leaving. By the time we finally pulled out, it was getting dark. The people that we got back from the field said that they could hear Jap tanks coming up the road and where, and they were near. For the last several days, the war had gotten much closer to us. Gunfire was almost constant. At night, you could see the flash of our cannons and hear the exploding shells of the enemy. It wasn't long before we could hear the drone of Jap bombers coming from a distance. We looked up and sure enough, they were headed our way. All of a sudden we could hear the swooshing of falling bombs. They started exploding as they hit the ground and each explosion kept getting closer and closer, working in our direction. I knew that we were in big trouble when I heard explosions getting louder and louder. Then almost immediately, we were practically obliterated by an exploding bomb that missed us by a few feet. When the bomb went off, it sent dirt and large rocks flying in the air in all directions, and we were almost covered by falling debris. This bomb was actually closer to me than the other bomb that killed the engineer on our airstrip and peppered my arm with shrapnel. You could reach out from our foxhole and practically touch the edge of the large crater that it made, but none of us 
were seriously hurt that's that's crazy so you got giant bombs blowing up and you can touch the crater that it leaves and you're surviving that's why you dig foxholes by the way that's why you dig foxholes because they provide incredible amount of protection that is when we decided we better go back and find our outfit when we did find our outfit we were flabbergasted by the news we were surrendering I could not believe it all these men still with arms and now under the protection of Corregidor's big guns we were giving up but it was true we were told to destroy all of our weapons and ammunition immediately in any way that we could most people were disassembling their rifles and pistols and throwing them into the bay so I did the same it was the quickest way to get rid of them I did not mind getting rid of my rifle but I hated to throw away my pistol we were told by our leaders to stay put until the Japs came in and when they did we would be taken to prisoner of war camps where we would sit out the rest of the war I did not like this idea at all but you could tell a lot of the guys felt relieved they were dirty tired hungry and had had enough of war they felt now that they had survived and would soon be fed sheltered and given some long read long needed rest Little did we know that we were headed for hell. And he goes into some, the, the, you gotta get this book and read the whole book because he goes into all the details of how this collapse kind of finalized. Back to the book. By the time we got back to the group, Japanese troops had arrived from the other direction. They were already lining people up to count us. Pretty soon a Jap soldier came up to me muttering something and at the same time flapping his hand up and down. I looked at him with a puzzled look because I didn't have the slightest idea what he wanted. The Jap kept his puzzling je- gestures and I could tell that he was getting more furious by the minute. I turned around, looked at some of the guys and shrugged my shoulders indicating that I did not know what the Jap wanted. Someone said, he wants you to sit down. So I, sit, so I sat down immediately and received a, cross, a crack across my head with a rifle butt. I knew then that that was not what he wanted, so I immediately got back up. That's when he gave me a shove, and the guy next to me a shove, and so on. He wanted us to start walking. That was the beginning of our march out of Bataan, and I believe that I was the first one to start it this is where my story is going to be difficult to tell for two reasons the first being that we were told on our return to the US that we were not to speak to anyone about our experience as prisoners of war not the press our family or friends the reason for this was that somewhere down the line we might be in a war again and undoubtedly more prisoners would be taken If we revealed how we survived, this information would get into the hands of our enemy, which would then make it doubly tough on our prisoners. This made good sense, and I did abide by it. Over the years, however, our story has been told so many times, now I feel free to tell mine. The second reason is that I was, and still am, 
reluctant to tell about my experiences at POW is the fact that I thought it would be impossible to describe what we went through impossible to tell and impossible to describe in written word I have since read many good books on the subject and seen film documentaries made but you had to be there to experience it to know what it was like I know that my meager attempt will also fail but I will write about it anyways so now we're we're clearly now we're starting this horrific situation this is the this is the baton death march as we marched along the road we soon soon found ourselves without hats and something far more critical water the Japanese were quick to take our canteens and empty them on the road and knocked our steel helmets off with their rifle butts we were marching through frontline troops that had just overpowered us they were still inflicting punishment on us in any way that they could we endured constant beatings 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 every time we ran into a new group down the road they hit us with rifles sabers sticks and anything else they could get their hands on we were half starved and many so weak they could barely walk but they showed us no mercy the day was torture to begin with we did not know where we were going and we kept thinking surely it couldn't be much further but it was much much further the Sun on our bare heads was bad but the worst was passing up water after water but not allowed any after marching well into the dark that day we finally stopped completely beat and exhausted we felt we would surely now be given food and water but that was not to be they put us in a fenced-off yard and told us through an interpreter that if any of us was found with a knife razor blade or anything that could be used as a weapon he would be immediately shot I thought to myself they did not say compass but I knew that I would be in big trouble if they found it so he had taken a compass and and he's keeping that on him in case he ever gets the chance to escape this place was extremely dark but there was enough light to see the Japanese soldiers with machine guns surrounding us we were packed like sardines with barely enough room to stretch out and no latrine facilities if you had to relieve yourself you did it where you were I had now gone 48 hours without food and what liquid I had before starting the march was long gone by way of sweat there was a lot of talking and moaning going on but it stopped immediately when we were told we would be shot if they heard any noises out of us again needless to say things quieted down and that is the last thing I remember that day The next day, we were started on the road again before dawn without food or water. Same treatment by the troops heading into Bataan, beatings, and more beatings. We were now plodding along like zombies. All we could think about was water. And he talks about the fact that he, they're, they're passing these little wells, these little pumps, and they can see that there's water they could clearly have, and the Japanese are not allowing them to drink this water, and that was torture is additional torture to what they were going through 
back to the book the countryside that we were now crossing was a total wreck the forest was literally destroyed it looked like a forest fire had gone through it and all that was left was the skeleton of what was formerly giant trees no remnants remained of what were once villages the roadside was littered with burned out trucks and cars and an occasional tank could be seen it looked like total destruction that it was the worst part however was the dead bodies scattered all over you could tell that they had been there for some time because they were all now black and bloated the stench was horrible and the sight was made more terrible by the swarm of flies around each body again all day we staggered along that hot dusty road and though we passed running artisans wells from time to time we were not allowed to drink we had long ago stopped thinking about food now it was water water you kept thinking where are they taking us when will it end you are thinking surely they know we are exhausted to the point of death and they would soon relent but they did not and we had to muster every bit of strength that we could carry on many of the sick and wounded had fallen out before now and the world knows how they were executed as they fell I saw some of this but not nearly as much as the people bringing up the rear I was fortunate in being near the front of the line and had the strength and fortitude to stay on my feet all day we looked forward to the end of the heat and misery thinking that at nightfall we would stop like we did the night before but this was not to be darkness came and we kept going long before now we had dumped any excess baggage that we were carrying a lot of people started to march with blankets mosquito nets etc but by the end of the first day this had all been discarded it was hard enough carrying your own weight much less anything additional for the most part now we were plodding along with strangers we when we found out we were surrendering the squadron broke up and we were lucky if we ran into a buddy occasionally being together as a unit under such a trying situation would probably have helped but that did not happen so this is just a, is a nightmare getting worse by the moment and I, I I didn't do a good job of explaining that going into this it wasn't like they were well fed and well nourished going into this situation they had already been under attack and they'd not had food they'd run out of food very quickly so these guys are already hungry and dehydrated when they started this thing and now it's just getting it's just getting worse I do think that the following took place shortly before dark on the third day I was desperate for water even though I had had some the night before by now many of the men were rushing every well that we came to even though they were being shot at as they did so there were one or two guards close enough to do the show shooting so if 10 or 12 men went at once the chances were six or eight would get back without being hit I decided I would go for it but would wait until late evening 
the opportunity finally arrived I made a dash for it with about 10 or 12 others shots were fired but I got a gulp of water without being hit and this continues on and on word continue word quickly spread that we were finally going to be fed and given water how that rumor got started I don't know but it did not happen after a period of about 30 or 40 minutes they started marching us out on the road again the gate that we went in was the opening between one of the houses and the high vine covered fence as we approached this opening on our way out I noticed an army canteen sitting on a small ledge on the side of the house my first reaction was that the canteen was a trap you would grab it and the Jap guards would shoot you for stealing I thought to myself trap or no trap I am going to grab it which I did as I went by it was in easy arms reach away and somewhat concealed by more ivy growing on the side of the house another miracle it was filled with water but I dared not drink it then I had to wait until dark to make sure that a Jap guard did not see me it is unexpected happenings like this that helped us to survive this is about the time that I started pulling out of it by that I mean I no longer expected to stop just up the road to be fed and given water but now knew that the Japanese intended to march us until we all finally perished to this day I still believe this to be true but I was not going to give them that satisfaction so that's a that's a hell of a mental transition to make from hey when are they gonna stop when are they gonna give us some food when are they gonna give us some water to no they're not going to and they're gonna march us until we die and you know what I'm not giving in fast forwarding a bit here the next day we reached the town of San Fernando where we finally stopped at least for the rest of that day and for that night here we were finally fed about a cup of a cup of boiled rice and allowed to have water at this point many would have said that the rest was more important or appreciated than the food because many were suffering from incredibly blistered and bloody feet my feet were badly blistered but not as bad as some who had put on new shoes when they were told to pack up and get ready to break camp I had no new shoes otherwise I would have done the same there's no way for a person to walk as far as we did without getting blistered feet we spent the night at San Fernando and the next day took off again no breakfast of course but now at least I had a canteen full of water by this time we were in an area where the Filipinos had returned to their barrios and Nipa huts bordering the road damage to property and terrain was not as bad as it was further to the south where more fighting had taken place so now they're marching through sort of the uh, vi- regular Philippine villages that weren't as decimated as the areas where the heavy fighting had taken place there were Filipino men women and children watching us as we wearily walked along and by the way I uh, another thing I didn't explain very well the Philip the Filipino military men were also being marched in 
simultaneously, but they had them segregated. So this is from the American viewpoint. They could see that the Filipinos were getting treated equally brutal, and if not worse, and they took massive casualties. They took tens of thousands of ca- deaths on this on this march. Um, but these, but now they're walking through where these regular. Filipino civilians are watching this death march take place back to the book in several places the women tried to hand food to us But the Japanese guards would not allow it. They had bananas mangoes and coconuts and it all looked so good. I Never saw it happen, but supposedly several Filipinos lost their lives to Japanese bullets when they tried passing food to the Americans This was the beginning of the end of the march out of Bataan, but we did not know until sometime that afternoon when we arrived at Camp O'Donnell. So that kind of, like he said, this is the beginning of the end of the march. And here they end up at Camp O'Donnell. Camp O'Donnell was a training camp for the Philippine Army and was built just prior to the war. It consisted of a series of barracks built in typical Philippine style. The thatched roofs had bamboo framed sides and floors and openings for windows, but no screens or shutters. Each barracks was about 50 feet long and could be called a double-decker because the attic was floored as well. The attic space may have been for storing personal gear in instead of an area for sleeping. I say this because the highest point between the floor and the ceiling or the roof was about five feet. It would be cramped even for a short Filipino. I should know because that is where I slept. Once we passed through the gate, we were made to sit down in an open field where the law was laid down by the Japanese commander. I did not pay much attention to what he said except to hear him say that if you did this, you would be shot, and if you did that, you would be shot. I wondered what we could do without being shot. After he was through, an American officer walked up and introduced himself as General King. He said that he was the general in charge of the troops on Bataan, and he was solely responsible for our surrender. He told us not to feel bad or discouraged or guilty because we had nothing to do with it. It was his decision. And if any blame was to eventually come, it was his to face. That's some ownership right there. I had never heard of the general before, but he struck me as a brave and sincere officer. Well, there you go. That's what happens when you take ownership. People, the people in your chain of command look and think you're a brave and sincere officer. Imagine if he stood up and said, well, we didn't get the support that we needed, and now we're in this position. It's like, no. I later learned that he surrendered the troops on Bataan without orders from General Wainwright and MacArthur when he realized that to continue fighting was useless considering the condition of the men under his command. He thought for sure that he would be court-martialed when the war was over because his last orders from MacArthur were to attack the enemy, an order which he chose to ignore. He knew that it meant sending hundreds more to their deaths, something that he would not do. Needless to say, he was not court-martialed at the end of the war because everyone by then realized that he did the right thing. We were finally taken to a barracks, and I decided the best place was up in the loft. I figured it would be the quietest and least disturbed. I took my only possession from around my neck, my musette bag, placed it on the floor, and got some long-deserved rest. The day was about over. Mosquitoes swarmed around my head before I fell asleep. 
but I did not have the energy to brush them off. Sometimes I think when I read these books about how pathetic mm-hmm. I am and you know how much like there's a mosquito in your room and it drives you crazy and you have to wake up and go kill it because you just can't yeah. deal with one mosquito that might bite you. Yeah. And here you are. Have you, have you ever, well, have you ever been in a subtropical place that has mosquitoes? Yeah. Kauai. Yeah. So it can be crazy. Yes, sir. It, it can, can be crazy. Do you have to sleep with a mosquito net there uh, in your it, house? No, not in the house, but there, there are some places where, yeah, they all have mosquito net. And it depends on where you live, too. If you live more up in like a mountain, jungly place, um, yeah, mosquito nets help sometimes. Yeah, so I've been in places where you got to sleep in a mosquito net. Yeah. And, and even imagining, you think to yourself, oh, well, this would be a nightmare if I didn't have a mosquito net. And these guys yeah. are... They don't have anything close to mosquitoes. They don't even have sheets. They have nothing. They're, they have yeah. nothing to cover themselves from being bit. So you think about these little tiny things that are like a major trauma when you're yeah. in your normal life. Yeah, it's a major trauma. Yeah, like I can't believe there's mosquitoes out right now. <laughs> you know, what's fun is you still you mentioning the mosquitoes is still kind of bothering me right now. Like the thought of mosquitoes being in the room now. Yeah, it's kind of no, like we're sitting here letting it bother, you, and then yeah. you imagine the situation these guys are in, and he's he's like, there's no who cares about mosquitoes. Yeah, he's he's, he's not tired. even brushing them off. He's too yeah. tired to brush them off. Man, yeah, that's back to the book we were now being fed a meager amount of rice but water situation was still critical there was one very slow running faucet out in the yard with a flow capacity of about a quart every 15 minutes or so the faucet was wide open and that is still all it would deliver so even now if and when we got water it had to be stringently conserved there was a line at the faucet always 24 hours a day Barely enough water to drink and definitely not enough to wash with it had now been a week since we broke camp on Bataan and we had not been able to wash since From here on I won't be able to recount what happened on a day-to-day basis But I will try to tell what was going on under and under what conditions as I mentioned earlier We were now getting a small amount of rice each day and for a change in menu started getting vegetables Not the part you would normally eat but the part that was normally discarded. We were first given boiled carrot tops. I presume the Japanese were eating the carrots and they generally, generously gave us the tops. They might as well have kept them because they were inedible. They would not stay down. They were so horrible and strong, we would upchuck after a few swallows. By now, there were many sick people around with dysentery, malaria, and diphtheria. Every conceivable disease was surfacing because of the physical condition of the men and the unhealthy conditions under which they were living. The sick were in such bad shape that they no longer stayed in the barracks but remained outside, some under the buildings to stay out of the sun and some lying outside on the ground near the slit trenches. Their clothes were all covered with excrement and some had discarded their clothes preferring to be naked. These men had dysentery, and to die of dysentery was the most horrible way to go. They had to stay outside or near the latrines, because with dysentery, you pass blood and mucus every 20 minutes or so. 
there is no way to keep from it. I know these men would have preferred dying fighting instead of in a horrible way that they were now going. Dysentery almost invariably meant death. I think I mentioned that my best friend had drunk polluted water and had come down with dysentery. Well, I now had the initial symptoms even though I did not drink. I was lucky, if you want to call catching dysentery lucky, in that my symptoms were occurred a week or so after we reached O'Donnell. I was lucky because I found out that the leaves from the trees found on the prison grounds were a cure for dysentery. I was also lucky because there were still leaves to be found and I was able to get a good pocket full of them which I immediately consumed. In a few days my symptoms disappeared and also in a few days the trees were stripped bare. Apparently word had gotten out around that the leaves were a medicine but there were not enough to go around. Dysentery spread so rapidly because of the open latrines and the millions of flies around them. They were the same big green flies that we saw in the dead bodies as we walked out of Bataan. There were so many that the branches of small trees around were bent to the ground. Sick men were also covered, especially those near the latrine, because the latrine itself held the greatest number. It was no wonder under these conditions that so many of the prisoners died. Besides the flies, the stench was something else that was always with us. It was everywhere, inside, outside, on you and on everyone else. There was no way to get away from it. It came with a dysentery, and by now the dysentery was also causing the death of many, many prisoners. They were dying by the hundreds. We heard that as many as 400 were dying each day. And I remember I looked around to try and determine how many of us were still alive. I estimated that at the rate we were dying, we would all be gone within a month or so. It reached a point where there were so many sick that I decided it was decided to put them in a separate section. It was called a hospital officially, but the prisoners called it the Zero Ward. When you went there, that was the beginning of the end. Most died within days. The dead were buried in mass graves of about 15 to 20 bodies in each. Each grave was about 5 or 6 feet wide, 8 or 10 feet long, and about 6 or 7 feet deep. About as soon as a grave was finished, there were bodies to fill it. Every morning a detail was sent to the hospital to collect the dead and then take them out to the graves for for burial. I was on this detail several times and it was gruesome. The dead that we picked up were all naked and were nothing but skin and bones. Several of the dead were from my squadron and one I could only recognize from his teeth. Each body was carried by four men, although now they weighed practically nothing. The dead were carried on wicker racks, which at some time were probably used as a door or as a window shutter. When we reached the graves, we just dumped them in the open holes. 
You could hear the bones crack as bodies were dumped on bodies. This seemed like a terrible way to treat our dead buddies, but since they had all died of dysentery, it was wise to handle the bodies as little as possible. When the hole was full, it was then covered with dirt, but no prayer or religious service was given. Across the road from us, the Filipinos were doing the same as we, burying their dead by the hundreds. Diphtheria was a big killer, as was cerebral malaria and beriberi in the early part of our confinement. There were two kinds of beriberi, wet and dry. With the wet, a person's hands and feet swelled enormously, and if the swelling progressed up the legs and into the abdomen, death resulted. With the dry form, there was no swelling, but it brought excruciating pain to the feet and hands with no let-up. As far as I know, this type is not fatal. I came down with the wet type. Another killer was hepatitis or yellow jaundice. I caught it at prison camp. Next to dysentery, hepatitis was probably the number two killer in the prison camps. It caused you to lose your appetite, which is one thing you could not afford to do because the food that you were getting was barely enough to keep you alive as it was. It's it's when you think of, uh, just again, putting this in perspective, you know, when we get sick, we, you know, we take a day off from work and you stay in your bed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, these guys, there's, there's no, there's no medical treatment whatsoever. Yeah. There's nothing. Up to now, no one had escaped. Again, I'm fast forwarding. Up to now, no one had escaped. But one night, it happened. It should not be called escape because these prisoners were caught trying to get back in in the prison camp. There were three of them, and they had been out looking for food or medicine. I remember they were put in a cage near the gate where the prisoners going and coming to and from work details could see them. The cages were in the hot sun, and they were not given food or water. You could tell they were suffering miserably. But their suffering only lasted a day or two, as I recall, because late one evening, we were called out to witness their execution. They were made to dig their own graves and fell into them when shot. After these men were shot, the Japanese came up with an idea that they thought would stop prisoners from trying to escape. They put us in what was called blood brother groups. And if one of the group escaped or tried to escape, the rest would be shot, regardless of their complicity. Later escapes did cause the death of innocent people. Many of the men felt abandoned and decided that such an existence as ours was not worth the price of survival so they just gave up. Dying was it much easier than the fight to stay alive, and many chose this way out. Now he gets assigned 
eventually to a bridge detail to build a bridge and this is kind of like you know the bridge on the river Kwai type scenario you got to go work and help build this bridge back to the book that worked was a short distance from our school what's where they were being held and turned out to be the rebuilding of an enormous bridge that had been destroyed during the war when we were not carrying and placing timber we were made to carry rocks rocks from the riverbed up to the bridge level a climb of probably 30 or 40 feet but it felt like scaling mount everest dysentery soon weakened our workforce and before long prisoners were again dying like flies I could not help but notice one guy's foot. It looked like it was rotting away, and I'm sure he had gangrene. What impressed me about him was his attitude about his affliction. He seemed even jovial as we rode back to camp. I never saw him again, but it was a miracle if he survived. According to a book written by one of the guys on this bridge detail, only seven of us were alive at war's end. Another man had something terribly wrong with him. I was never sure what the problem was exactly, but it involved his stomach, and I don't know if it was a war wound or what. He wore a very wide rubber band around his stomach, and I was told it was to keep his intestines in. The rubber band was cut from a large inner tube that slipped that he slipped into. I never did see his stomach beneath the rubber bandage, but I did see a Japanese guard make him show it to him, and the guard stepped back, horrified. I doubt if this prisoner survived. They end up at a different prison camp called Cabana Tuan. Cabanatuan prison camp was just like O'Donnell and it is hard for me to separate them in my mind I have sep- trouble separating the two prison camps because one was just as bad as the other little water and dirty filthy living conditions Back to rice, but now more soupy instead of dry people were still dying with dysentery and other diseases I was still in my dirty clothes clothes that had not been off my body since leaving our camp on Bataan And now they're getting told that they're going to be transported back to the book when we were told we were going to Japan The Japanese made it sound like we were going to heaven We'd be leaving this stifling tropical heat and going to a climate that was cool and comfortable They get transported to Manila and eventually they get on a ship the ship that we got on was large and apparently carried Japanese troops from place to place I'm not sure how many prisoners boarded this ship, but the number was very high a later estimation put the number at 2,000 We would end up like sardines, except we were packed vertically instead of horizontally. It turned out lucky that I was to be on the floor because even though I could not lie down and stretch out, I could at least sit and stand. People crowded in the sleeping bays also did not have room to stretch out, but they also did not have enough headspace to stand up. By now the ship was getting unbearably hot from the heat of the tropical sun and the large number of prisoners in such a confined space added to it. It was quickly turning into agony, but we had not seen the worst. Because many of the prisoners were still coming down with dysentery, toilet facilities soon became a problem. All we had was a bucket on topside, and the Japanese guards would only let about two people out at a time. 
It wasn't long before we were crowded at the ladder wanting to use the so-called facility. And it also wasn't long before the place became a stinking cesspool. People soiled their clothes and everyone and everything around them. If anything, it was worse than Camp O'Donnell because now everyone was confined in a small, overcrowded space and you just could not get away from it. Getting drinking water was also just as bad because it was also topside and you got it when you went to the latrine. As expected under such conditions, people began to die. At first it was maybe one or two a day and some days none, but eventually it got up to several a day. Most of the dying occurred at night for some reason. And in the morning they were passed up to the Japanese to be thrown overboard. Nights were probably more stressful because the hole that we occupied was in total darkness. You could not see a thing, but you could hear the constant moaning of men in agony. One night, all bedlam broke loose. There was loud screaming and thrashing of disturbed bodies, which caused a considerable uproar. In the dark, you could tell that many people were involved, even though they could not be seen. Next morning, we found out what happened. One of the prisoners had gone mad and started attacking everyone around him with his canteen. When he severely hurt several around him, it was obvious that he could not be restrained. He was killed by those around him with his own canteen. Next morning, he was lifted out of the hole with several others and slipped overboard. His troubles were over. So, I don't know what is much worse than the situation that we're in right now. Um, when you have guys going crazy and the only choice that you're left as a fellow soldier is to kill your fellow soldier to prevent him from hurting anyone else. Eventually, after about three or four weeks, we came to a complete stop. We could hear voices on the outside of the ship as our ship was tied up. We soon learned that we were in a Taiwan harbor. Now that we were back out in the open and breathing again, fresh air felt like we had risen from the dead, so they, they get off the ship and they end up there. I mean, obviously, they're, they're literally covered in shit. And, you know, when he talked about people with dysentery, you, you're, you're, you're relieving yourself and you're shitting out blood and mucus, and that's what they're just covered in. I don't know if this was their original intention, but after they saw how dirty and filthy we were, they decided to clean us up as well as the ship. They made us strip completely and then blasted us with water from fire hoses. The force of the water hurt and stung, but it felt good. We had no soap, but that was all right. This was the first water I had had on my body since we left our bivouac in, on Bataan. We were also stomping on our wet clothes to hope to work out some of the dirt and crud as well as that on our own bodies. 
While this was going on, there was a crowd of Taiwanese onlookers taking all this in. There were both men and women. It was about now that I noticed my own body. I was shocked and horrified by what I saw. It was not the dirty body as such, but the physical condition of that body. I had dwindled to skin and bones and had not been aware of it. My legs and arms were completely devoid of muscle and flesh, and I looked like a living skeleton. I was as skinny as the men who had died of dysentery. It really shook me to discover this. And if you go on the internet, you can see pictures of guys that were involved in this, and they look absolutely wretched. They actually look, some of them look exactly how he describes it as, they look like living skeletons. That's how much, how, how completely malnourished they were. Back to the book, when we finally did get back on the ship, we found our so-called quarters still dripping wet and now very cold. Even after we were all back in, it did not. It still did not feel warm. By now, because of the number of prisoners that had died, there was a little more space for everyone. I remember the one guy who had a bunk position now had enough room to lie down. He was even kind enough to give me his space from time to time to stretch out and take a nap. It was funny because we never did learn each other's names. I think it was the best way because if the person died, you would not take it so hard just another stranger gone so they go out at sea again and then they pull into another port finally after many days I felt the ship slow and come to a halt I thought Japan at last and now I might get medical help and medicine for my sickness and pain before long prisoners were crawling up the ladder out of a hole until the place was almost empty with my musette bag around my neck and my canteen in it, I made an attempt to cross over to the ladder, but that was not to be. I could not even raise, rise, much less walk. Pretty soon, two Japanese soldiers came down into the hole and started lifting the sick and dying to the other Japanese above. I was not the only one unable to move. When they came to get me, they lifted me to my feet and drug me over to the ladder. They wanted me to crawl up and out, but that was impossible. I was too weak, and I hurt too much. When they saw I could not do it, each Japanese guard grabbed me by the arms, lifted my arms above my head, then handed me to waiting guards above. The Jap guards above grabbed me by my wrists and lifted me out. How I survived this ordeal, I shall never know. The pain that I felt when being lifted by the arms was excruciating. I had never felt anything like it before, nor have I felt anything come close since. So, I mean, he's just, he can't can't even stand up. He's just completely broken and starving, and they have to drag him out of there. Luckily, they didn't kill him. They load him onto a truck. Back to the book. The truck ride that followed was no joyful experience either. Now my bones began to take a beating as I lay on the metal bed of the truck. I was being bounced around because of a very rough road and I had no flesh on my bones to cushion each bounce. Again, pain and misery. When would it end? 
Finally, we arrived at what appeared to be an army camp and the trucks drove up to one of the barracks. Once inside, we found the place to be very clean and nice and warm. There was snow on the ground outside, which accounted for the heat inside. There were even straw-filled mattresses and blankets for each man. We learned a little later that we were not in Japan, but in a place called Pusan, Korea. I'd never heard of it before. So... Now they're um, obviously they're in Korea now, and you can see the treatment gets a little bit better. There's a little bit of influence from the Koreans trying to be a little bit more humane. I think all back to the book as all as in all the places I had previously been, people were dying at the rate of two or three a day. They were picked up in the morning when the doctor came in and taken out and cremated. By then, you could tell when a person was about to die. They had what we called a death grin. The skin was stretched so tightly across their fleshless faces that their mouths stayed permanently open as though grinning. A person in that condition was not long for this world. There was another condition that we called the death rattle. This also meant death within a few days. I was shocked beyond belief one morning when the person next to me said that during the night I was making the rattling sound. After that, I was afraid to go to sleep because that was usually when a person died. I remember fighting to stay awake night after night. The night seemed to last an eternity and I remembered how glad I was to hear the sound of the crows in the distance. It meant morning was near and I was still around. You reach a point where dying becomes easy, but staying alive is a battle. Many chose not to fight any longer. I would say that after two or three weeks, the dying ceased. There were about 20 or 25 of us left, and we were slowly starting to get out of bed and move around some. So like I said, they're starting to get a little bit more food, a little bit better treatment. One thing that I'm not sure of in my mind is when the Japanese finally gave us new clothes and shoes to wear. The clothes we were given were all Japanese army issue. Shoes, cap, shirt, pants, socks, underwear, and coat. These were Japanese summer uniforms and clothes and not woolen uniforms that our guards were now wearing. We hated having to wear a Jap uniform, but we really had no choice. So... Now they actually end up getting on a train and they go for a long train lot ride and When they finally get off um, The place looked like and felt like the inside of a deep freezer everything was covered with snow and frozen solid And then They get put into a truck after they get off the train in this frozen area and they travel out from the train area from the train station away from the city and they keep going and they keep going and finally they get to a place that looks like a prison Back to the book. I remember there were several buildings possibly a dozen or more, but I am not sure of the exact number The buildings were low to the ground and barely visible because of the thick blanket of snow that covered everything. We stopped shortly at one of the buildings and unloaded. Again, I needed assistance. I wasn't in the building more than five minutes when one of the men said that my nose was frozen or frostbitten and I had better quickly do something about it. 
if I knew my frost my nose was frost uh, frozen my feet surely were also both my nose and feet blistered horribly and turned black and blue like a bad bruise the skin eventually peeled off and I was fine except for some badly scarred feet so I didn't go into enough detail but while they're transporting in these trucks it's freezing and so you've got these guys that are in whatever summer uniforms and by the way they're they weigh nothing they have no zero they literally have zero body fat on them and they're freezing in these trucks and he gets frostbite back to the book we also found out that we were near the city of Mukden Manchuria we had come from the furnace of the tropics into the deep freeze of the Arctic and if you remember that name might sound a little bit familiar Mukden Manchuria that is one of the locations where the Japanese the unit 731 did experiments on Caucasian they wanted to have Caucasian prisoners to do experiments on to make sure that the reactions to biological and chemical weapons were the same as they were on the Asian prisoners that they had been using on them on on the Chinese prisoners that they've been using these these chemical weapons on and these biological weapons on and so that's where he is now settle in a little bit here before long it was lights out time I again became aware of how weak I was I tried to call, crawl under my blankets I, when I read this I was thinking about this so listen to this I tried to crawl under my blankets but could not lift them Eventually, with the help of others, I managed to make it. The covers felt good for a while, but before long, my body began to ache from the weight of the covers, and I had a miserable night. If I removed the blankets, I would freeze, and if I left them on, I would hurt. I decided hurting was better because I was used to that by now. It was the next day or close to it that the Japanese came around and gave each man a number. Mine was 1439. About this time, we were also weighed. We were placed on a foot scale. I figured I weighed around 90 pounds after subtracting for food, for shoes and clothing. So if you remember, he was boxing at 165, and as you know, as a boxer, it's not like you're, you don't have a lot of weight on you. You're not sitting around with a bunch of extra weight. So now he's under 90 pounds. And why are they getting weighed? Well, he didn't know at the time. Why are they getting weighed? They're getting weighed because they're going to be experimented on. And he doesn't really connect the dots in this book, but you know, obviously they're getting weighed because they're 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 trying to figure out how much weight they're going to lose and how much weight they're going to gain and how the how long it takes them to get sick. And and if you remember, at Unit Seven Thirty One, one of their goals was to keep the prisoners healthy enough that they could experiment on them. Mm-hmm. So that is one. I guess small benefit to to this situation if I could even call it that I guess I can't but there's one upside to this is that since they're going to be used as experiments and again he doesn't talk about it too much and it's not very clear but they start feeding them better back to the book going to beans from rice I'm sure saved many prisoners lives as I am almost positive it saved mine beans are rich in vitamins and protein while rice is a starch or a carbohydrate which we know is not good 
contrary to expectations, coming to a cold climate did not stop the dying. The first winter was the worst, with the killers still being dysentery, hepatitis, and now pneumonia was added to the list. And again, who knows how many of these diseases were actually inflicted on on the prisoners by the Japanese. Because they're in a cold climate, why are they getting these tropical diseases? Well, back to the book. Here the sick and dying had a new scourge, body lice. They were crawling all over by the thousands. Body, hair, clothes, you name it, they were there. In the heat of the tropics, it was flies, and here it was body lice. Body lice probably spread germs as readily as flies. Everyone had lice, but those who were well enough to keep the number of lice down. They got in the seams of your clothes when they went, when they were not biting you, and that is where you looked for them. As they were discovered, they were squashed between your fingernails, exposing the blood they had sucked from your body. The Chinese coolies did not let them get away with their blood because they ate them when they were discovered. A Chinese coolie at rest was always searching for lice. Come to think of it, we were too, at least at this time. During that first winter, all the dead were placed in a storage building. That was necessary because the ground was still frozen solid, making it impossible to dig graves. Burial could not, therefore, take place until mid to late spring. When the time arrived, a large burial detail was sent out to dig graves. Even when even then digging was difficult because only the top eight to ten inches of the ground had, was thawed with frozen rock-hard soil below. This was permafrost country. When the graves were finally dug, we went for the bodies. We found them stacked like cordwood. Again, this this is remnants of Unit 731 because they were still frozen solid. As in the Philippines, they were all naked. They looked like skeletons with skin stretched over their bones. The one difference was many of the bodies were lemon yellow. They had died from hepatitis or so-called yellow jaundice. Although it was prevalent in the tropics, it was catching up with us now. Um, now eventually he gets well enough and they put him on a work detail in a factory and still dealing with troubles back to the book when we were in prison campuses in the Philippines our strongest want or desire was water food was secondary now that we had sufficient water it was food that was constantly on our minds I remember how we used to say that if we ever got back to the States we would carry food with us wherever we went if we had a house it would be full if we had a car the trunk would be loaded the pockets of our clothes would also be stuffed with candy bars and peanuts we could at least dream if nothing else and so this is pretty cool they're in this factory and what they're doing is they're preparing their this work detail is to prepare a factory for the Japanese and the they're putting cement floor in and they've got these big machines that are going to be used to build whatever and here we go the machines that were in crates were brand new and consisted of metal lathes large drill presses extremely large shapers and others that I was not familiar with closer investigation they found a, a little wooden box in the corner for each crated machine closer investigation revealed that the wooden box contained handles knobs dials screws bolts etc in other words precision tools and essential parts that went with the machine right away we knew what we had to do with them get rid of them 
We started by taking the smaller parts and dumping them in the latrine in the same old saddle trench style, but eventually got bolder. When a hole was completed and ready to be filled with concrete, someone would grab a bunch of parts and throw them in the hole where they would be quickly covered. Without these important parts, the machines would be useless. That's like hardcore. These guys are still resisting and still fighting. They want the Japanese to be able to build anything. So they destroy these parts. I mean, that's at risk of, obviously, that's at risk of death. If you get caught doing that, you're going to get killed. Mm. They eventually move to a different camp. And this one looks, it's another one that looks just like a prison. And he talks about some of these other diseases. When I wrote when I wrote earlier of diseases that existed among the prisoners in the Philippines, I forgot to mention that we also had much scurvy and something else called Guam blisters. They were like a raw sore without a scab. They started as small as a small blister, which would not heal, but kept getting bigger and bigger. Since there was no medication to cure them, they would eat away at the entire layer of skin, leaving the flesh below exposed. As the blister grew and devoured more skin, no scab formed, which made for an ugly-looking sore. Where the good skin was being eaten away, there was always a small rim of pus. Some of these blisters got as large as a silver dollar, and some of the prisoners had several at one time. I was lucky I did not have one but I did have a very large ringworm on my stomach. It was about the size as a saucer and getting larger by the day. So there's something all of us jujitsu people can relate to. You get a ringworm that's the size of a dime and it's like a, a nightmare. And here you got a ringworm that's the size of a saucer. And it gets worse. Here we go. Here came the fleas. They only showed up in great numbers at night, but then it was by the hundreds. They were actually a lot more aggravating than the lice. Their bite was a lot more painful, and they made it almost impossible to sleep at night. I reached a point where our, it reached a point where our underwear looked like it was made from polka-dotted material, when in fact it was spotted with dry blood. Even though we were in much better quarters, our food had not improved. So we still had much sickness and some dying still. Tuberculosis was now killing people and beriberi was still prevalent. You know, I think I've been bitten by a flea five times in my whole entire life. Maybe. Zero here. Zero for Echo Charles. And here are these things that are, they're biting you so much that your underwear looks like it's spotted, like it's polka dotted. From the blood. Another person had dry beriberi so badly that he consented to be taken to a place in Mukden where the nerves to his feet were severed. It apparently relieved his pain, but his, now f- his feet now looked floppy to me like he did not have any control of them anymore. Well, yeah, they cut his nerves. By now, by now my main problem was with my teeth. I had developed bad cavities in two back teeth and they hurt constantly. So now his teeth are all jacked up. So now he goes to a, to a supposed dentist. I sat down in the chair. One of the Japanese reached for an instrument and I instinctively opened my mouth. He reached in and immediately I felt this horrible pain. I thought, good, it is finally out. 
in another second or two, more pain just like the first and more and more. What was happening was that the Japanese was not pulling yet. He was just cutting the gum away from the tooth so he could reach way down on it and get a good grip for pulling. Luckily, it finally came out without any problem. The pulling was less painful than the cutting. I forgot to mention there was no Novocaine or other painkiller provided when the teeth were pulled. You don't like that one? <laughs> no, sir, I don't. Man. Because you know when you go to the dentist, it's nerve-wracking that's, that's even a whole, with I, it. You know, I, I actually considered whether or not I should put the, that in there because I know there's some people that really don't like going to the dentist. Yeah. I myself was never never really cared. It, it was not that big of a deal to me to go to the dentist, but I know that some people have like a legitimate phobia of the dentist And I apologize. I'm sure that last little section isn't gonna help out. No, no, and I, I don't know that I have a phobia I think I'm just like a normal dentist um, Regarder I guess mm-hmm. I regard the, it's this but it is nerve-wracking though So, you know, you know, well the dentist, you know when they when they do put Novocaine right yeah. that needle for some reason it doesn't hurt I don't know. Uh, Does it hurt? I mean, you don't feel the needle, right? You feel it a little bit, but it's yeah, like less than like if you even if you got like a blood test or something. Okay. Like anyway, so so you're all numb, but when they bust out that drill and doing like all the stuff they do Mm -hmm. in there, it's nerve wracking because you're like, oh, I can feel it grinding my teeth out or whatever they're doing, and then but you don't really feel the actual pain every once in a while, you know. So it's just you're constantly at this high stress level, and then now this guy. No, no, we can't. Basically, what you're at the stress level for, (laughs) he's just taking it head on 100%. And then he's like, hey, when they pulled out my tooth, it wasn't as bad as the cutting. No, cutting your gums is not going to be a good situation. Yes, no, sir, it's not. For a very long time now, we had had no news about the progress of the war. The Japanese kept telling us that before long they would be sitting in the White House in Washington. None of us believed this propaganda, but why was it taking the U.S. so long to beat the Japanese? We did not, or at least I did not, know about Pearl Harbor, and maybe that was a good thing not knowing. Had we known, I know that our morale would have sunk to the bottom of our toes, and he's just talking about the mass destruction that that, w- that happened. Mm-hmm. So far, I have not mentioned anything or very little about our thoughts of home and family. It was a personal thing with everyone everyone and was little, if ever, discussed, but you can be sure that it was on everyone's mind. If others were like me, and I'm sure most were, you thought about your parents back home almost every night and knew how they were suffering, not knowing where you were or how you were or even if you were alive or dead. This must have been an agony to them. The same could be said of brothers and sisters and wives and children. I always felt that the prisoners who suffered the most mentally were the ones with wives and children back home. I know it was extra hard on them, but they were few in number. Most of the men were young and not married. So that's interesting if you remember when Captain Plum was on. I think those guys got to a level where they knew they were going to survive. And even Captain Plum said he didn't think he was going to die. You know, he said, I, I, I was going to live. Like, he thought that they were going to live through the war. But I think for these guys, it must be a different... And, and that's why the guys that were in, like, the Hanoi Hilton, remember, they knew everything about everyone's life and every single story that you would try and remember every single possible thing that you could about your whole life and tell it to your roommate. Mm. 
but I think these guys are in such a state where survival is not a known entity and so I think it sounds like and he mentioned earlier that not knowing people was actually easier Easier, so it's sort of a different psychological situation now he goes on I know everyone enjoyed going to sleep at night and if you dreamed it was usually always the same but it left you extremely depressed the next day in most dreams you were at last freed from prison camp and back in the States and feeling euphoric free 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 again how wonderful but the shock of awakening was so heartbreaking when you found out you were still in prison I believe these dreams actually did more harm than good even so they came back time and time again there was no getting away from them no the people not home were not forgotten and we knew they had not forgotten us so that's you have these beautiful dreams that everything's cool and then you wake up and you're still in prison camp back to the book the Japanese put everyone to digging foxholes they were not for us but for the Japanese some were at the factory and some of on the Japanese side of the camp none were on our none were on our side when this work started we knew that the Japanese were now expecting expecting possible air raids and we were excited because the war was getting closer it wasn't too much longer after we finished digging all of the foxholes that we were required to cover them over they were covered with heavy timbers and then further covered with a large amount of dirt this told the Japanese that we were taking this told us that the Japanese were taking a pounding somewhere which in our minds was great at about the same time the Japanese were becoming rather aggressive and there was a definite change in their attitude and treatment of us we now had to really watch what we were doing and if we did anything illegal make sure we were not caught some of the men were caught however and suffered the consequences so this is great news there's they're like oh you got to dig in that means Americans are coming mm-hmm. <sighs> One morning shortly after we had gone to work, air raid sirens started going off all over the city and everyone became very excited, especially the Japanese. We were quickly rounded up and made a double time back to camp. This time we were not searched but sent immediately to our barracks and told to stay inside. We could still hear sirens going off in all directions. We had not been back to our barracks very long when the Japanese came back and set everyone outside in the yard. Our yard was probably 150 to 200 feet long and perhaps 100 feet wide, more or less. When everyone was out, the Japanese made us lie down and then took off, probably for their foxholes. It wasn't long before we could see a large formation of heavy bombers headed our way. They were up very high and each left a streak in the sky that extended for many miles behind it. It was a beautiful sight. And we felt proud and excited it had to be American planes and the war had reached Manchuria we watched them slowly come our way but the Japanese also saw them coming and sent up fighter planes to intercept them which was a mistake from the ground it looked like a swarm of mosquitoes going after a flock of geese and the comparison is good because that is about how effective the Jap fighters were 
from the ground we could see flashes of fire coming from the bombers and see Japanese planes go plunging down in smoke just about then you could hear the roar of the guns from the bombers as the sound reached the ground time after time the Japs moved in but the results were the same Japs going down in flame with no apparent damage to the bombers what a fight I would like to interrupt writing about this attack at this point to mention that our prison camp was in the middle of a heavy a heavily industrialized area which is was against international rules of war we should not have been imprisoned where we were right next to us was an ammunition factory and a short distance behind us a tank factory we were very close to an airplane factory and a major rail yard there were numerous military targets for Americans to bomb and unfortunately we were right in the middle of them still lying on my back I kept my eyes on the bombers and was impressed by the large number in the formation about 18 or 20 as I recall Pretty soon I could see the silver flashes of released bombs and then in another few seconds saw the sky filled with hundreds of bombs hurtling down on us and making their typical loud swooshing sound. I knew they would not miss and they did not. Three of the bombs from the plane on the outside of the formation hit our camp and the destruction was horrible. One of the bombs landed near the high brick wall that surrounded our compound and knocked a big chunk out of its top. The bomb fell right in the yard where we were lying and instantly killed 19 of us and severely wounded many more. The third bomb was an incendiary and fell on our barracks and set it on fire. It was a tragedy. Here we were, after so very long a time, excited beyond belief at watching our side win for a change, and look what happened. We could hardly believe it, but we were now being killed by our own bombs. Even though I was within 20 feet or so of the bomb, I was not hurt. I looked up. As I looked up, I saw men blackened from the blast try to rise, but fall back terribly wounded or dead. Again, it's the heavies from the other, the other side, the other perspective. Now, at a certain point, one of those bombs, one of those bombers did get shot down and the, the air crew and pilots from the aircraft that got shot down got captured. And so here we go. These were men who had survived the blowing up of their B-29 bomber and were now being held captive in a house within sight of our camp. They said they did not know of our prison camp and and they get communication with them. They said they did not know of our prison camp, and in actuality, it was marked on their maps as a must-get target. This wasn't terribly reassuring, but they did pass on more cheering information than that. They said Japan was being defeated all over the Pacific, and it, it appeared that the war should not last too very much longer. By the action in the sky, we had already come to assume that. They also said that they were flying out of from the island of Guam. There was always the po- so they feel like the war. Okay, but the, this is obviously a really positive side. The Japs, Japanese are getting beat all over the Pacific. The bombers are there, even though it's horrible that they're getting bombed. They at least feel like the war is heading in the right direction. But then there's this. Back to the book. There was always the possibility we felt that when the war was over or about over and the Japanese realized that they had lost, 
they may decide to execute all of us instead of letting us go free so they got that in the back of their mind little section here he gets in some trouble one morning when we arrived at the factory and headed for our work in the lumber yard we noticed Japanese soldiers all over the place they were running and crawling and obviously playing war so the Japanese were running a drill we just ignored what was going on and walked right through them to get to our shack when we were in the process of hanging up our coats when a jet we were in the process of hanging up our coats when a Japanese officer burst in on us and he was mad 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 So he gets in trouble. The, the Japanese officer that's all mad lines up everyone in the little shack and he has his saber in his left hand and he started punching each guy in the face. And that's what, that's what he does. And he ends up, they end up getting in trouble because they got punched, I guess. They got in trouble because they, they got punched. And finally, he's gonna be questioned. And he's in this, gonna get questioned in this guardhouse, which is sort of like where they do solitary confinement in this, in this guardhouse, the prison within the prison. So, the, so James is about to get interrogated. Back to the book. He asked me if I thought that the Japanese officer at the factory had a right to hit us the way he did. I hesitated for a second, like I was pondering the question, then answered, well, I am not sure. Just as soon as these words came out of my mouth, I knew that I had answered wrong. But nothing happened, and I was questioned a bit further until the same question came up again. Did I think that the Japanese officer at the factory had the right to hit us the way he did? For a second, I was in a quandary. Should I just say yes, sir, or should I repeat my first answer? I decided maybe being consistent was the way to go, so I repeated my original answer, and that was a mistake. Almost instantly, I was hit on the right side of my jaw with a closed fist, not by the officer, but by the interpreter. From that point on, he decided to slap me in the face as hard as he could. I think he really hurt his fist when he hurt me the first time, which is why he changed to the slap. All the while you were being beaten, you were being made to stand at attention. With this kind of beating, you don't give them the satisfaction of knowing you, letting them know you are hurt. You just don't let yourself fall down and moan. All I could think about was, you little son of a bitch, if I could just get you alone under different circumstances, I would tear you apart. After the beating stopped, I was thrown into the guardhouse with the rest of the guys. The inside of my mouth was badly cut and I swallowed blood for several days. My face was swollen and I had black eyes. I stayed in the guardhouse for about three weeks. Conditions in the guardhouse were unbelievably cruel and I hope I can explain exactly what it was like. It was built similar to our barracks except it had cells instead of separate sleeping quarters. There was a central hall with cells on either side. Each cell was about 8 feet wide and probably 12 feet long with a very narrow slit trench for a latrine in the back corner. The floor was concrete and that was it. No bed, blanket, chair or anything else. The guard, the guardhouse was solitary confinement at its worst. I found the hardest thing to take was the boredom. You've heard the song, Time Goes By So Slowly? Well, it certainly applied then. Standing in one place, even if not at attention, can be a killer. I used to watch a spot of light that came in through the crack on the boarded window, and it almost drove me mad. 
I tried to ignore it, but I couldn't. It would be made to get up. I would be made to get up in the morning at 5 o'clock, and several hours later, when there was sufficient light, the spot would appear. It first showed up on one side of my cell and then moved so terribly slowly across the other side until it finally disappeared. After it was gone, I knew I still had several hours to go before I would get rest. It was agony to watch, and it was the same thing day after day after day. And then eventually we were probably released when we were, without the usual trial and sentencing, because the Russians invaded Manchuria and here we go at this point I would like to refer you to a diary that I started on August 15th 1945 and continued until September 2nd 1945 it tells the story as it was happening which is much better than my trying to recall events 50 years later the diary short but I think it's worth including here so basically we we end up with him getting released and he starts tracking what's happening because he can there were some Americans that were brought into the situation and he starts keeping a little journal as he said and I'm just gonna read a little bit a little bit from the journal Americans working at the Japanese garage brought in news that about the same time that the war was definitely over they said that a nip told them that Japan had surrendered at 9.30 o'clock on the 15th of August. These men were willing to bet anything on this dope. Yes, optimism reigned supreme, and I had never seen excitement such as this before. But such a heart-rendering drop came a little while later when word was passed around that these six new men had been placed under lock and key in the guardhouse. Yes, morale rating was now zero minus. Now we'll go August 17th. This morning we found out who these new men are. They are American volunteers who were flown over from China to take over this prison camp and to see that the Japanese did not mistreat us. Also, set up communications between here and our American forces. The story of their undertaking is very thrilling and these men deserve a word of praise and credit for their brave deed. And then this happens. The American Assembly call was blown about 8 o'clock and we formed outside where General Parker, the senior American official, made a speech. Before he would cut us in on the real dope, he told us that we must be calm and maintain a hold on ourselves. He emphatically stressed that there were to be no demonstrations. He proceeded to tell us of the armistice between America and England, the Netherlands, and Japan, which brought about a roaring cheer from the prisoners. But he warned us that we were still prisoners and that Japan and Russia were still at war. This little speech brought happiness to everyone, even though we knew what he was going to say before he started. This was the news that we had been waiting to hear for three and a half years, and it was now official. Man, three and a half years. So I just buzzed through this in an hour and 47 minutes right now and this is three and a half years you got to get the book and then you got to think about even more than what's what you read about in the book we were still under Japanese guard but the administrative administration of the camp was taken over by Americans we really we really chowed like we should have now that we had the keys to the storeroom so boom let's go there's there's 
they start seeing Russian pursuit planes over the camp. Um, Sunday the 19th held church services to get today in Thanksgiving for our war's ending. More Russian planes overhead today. The men really got a thrill out of seeing friendly planes again. They are all anxious to see the American Air Force and its large bombers that they have heard so much about. Monday, August 20th, we were told today that the Russians would be in camp. Saw our first B-24 bomber today at around 4.30. The prisoners really went wild with joy. It circled over the camp three, two or three times and dropped leaflets telling us about the war being over and for us to remain where we were until help arrived. These leaflets were late. They should have been dropped before the parachutists came in, and that's the, the rumor mill, mm. the guys that had come in earlier. The Russians came in at about 7 o'clock, and did they cause great excitement? There was a general and five or six officers. The general called us together and gave us a speech. An American prisoner acted as an interpreter. The general said that from this day on, we were free and no longer under the hand of the Japanese. The crowd went wild with joy. Cheer after cheer rang through the air. He told us how in the last 10 days they had covered 1,000 kilometers of mountain streams and wilderness. More cheering from the crowd. He told us that he was in Berlin when Germany surrendered and met officers of the U.S. 8th Army. He said that he would, he told them that he would soon be leaving to fight Japan and that he would set us free also had a ceremony of the surrender of the Japanese guards and the turning over of their sabers and arms to the American guards. It was quite an interesting and strange spectacle. What made it appear strange was that it was performed in the light of the moon. The Russian general presented General Parker with a Japanese revolver. The ceremony was completed by the Russian general having the American guards parade the Japanese before the prisoners and off the parade ground. Man, the restraint is 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 insane. I mean, yeah. I can't. I it's hard for me. I'm I've considered myself to be a pretty, you know, emotionally controlled person, and I think if I was in that prison for three and a half years, and the war ended, and the Japanese that had tortured and beat and starved, we might have a little something to talk about. <laughs> I might have a little something for those guys, a little bit more than just marching them around the camp. But you know what that shows you? It shows you that that's the that's how professional the American soldier is, man. It's 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 amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. We got this from from Unit Seven Thirty One. Those books as well. The people that were being tortured, they got turned over by the Russians and said, "Do what you want with them." And and the the determination was, we're going to treat them humanely. Yeah. <sighs> back to the book. Back to the diary. September 2nd we have been moving we have we've been having moving pictures means movies for at least two nights and I've never enjoyed anything so much before in all of my life being in prison camp for so long almost made me forget what was going on back in America I am just beginning to realize now what I have missed if I would have seen a movie two years ago I'm afraid I would have tried to escape at any cost if I would have realized what I was really missing, this long time in prison camp would have been much harder to bear. More sick left by plane today. Our new colonel told us that we would probably be out of here, out here for at least another month. What's a measly month more after having been here for so long? In fact, it is good to know that we will be leaving for home in only a month's time. 
Yeah, when you kind of consider in his mind, it's either it went from never yeah. to one month. So it's like, oh, all right, yeah. I could do that month. Yeah, it's also interesting how he he got detached from yeah. what the world had, and he actually found that beneficial. And, and I've talked about that. Well, the first interview I did with Tim Ferriss, I talked about how I kind of detached from from what's going on, you know, from like yeah. pictures of my kids and didn't hang them up because I, wa- I didn't want to be thinking about that because yeah. I'm there to do the job. And yep. you can see that he's saying he would have gone crazy and tried to escape if he'd known what <laughs> yeah, he was missing. Back to the book. When we finally got to see what the Japanese had on their side of the prison camp, we were astonished and mad. They had a room full of mail and packages from the states that they never delivered, plus a large quantity of Red Cross packages. We speculated that the Japanese were living off our Red Cross packages when food became scarce, food that was meant for us. By now, since we were all free to leave prison camp and wander, everyone was looking for a Japanese saber to take home as a souvenir from the war. It would show that at long last, in the end, we were the winners and they were vanquished. Eventually, and again, get the book that he's leaving Mukden. I was on the last truck out, and as we pulled away, I saw the Russians come out of the front gate with the Japanese and walk on the outside of the brick wall toward the back of the camp. My impression was that they were going to line the Japanese up against a back brick wall and shoot them. Check. I'm supporting the Russians in this one, I think. Back to the book. There they end up in the in the port in in China where they're going to get their ride home on a ship. There was an American transport waiting for us at the dock, but when the ship captain saw all of us armed with rifles and sabers, he would not let us on the ship unless we gave up our weapons. We said, "No way, captain. These are ours and we're not going to part with them." He then said that he would safely store them for us and they would be returned when we docked. Our reply was an emphatic no. By now we were looking for a place to sack out because we were not going to board that ship without our arms. Well, after a lengthy delay, the captain relented and we were finally allowed on the ship with our sabers clanking at our sides. So they, he talks about, they go, they go through great efforts to get these Japanese sabers. Mm. Once on the ship, we were given a cursory medical check deloused and given clean clothes, I believe, before being taken to our living quarters. Our dispute with the captain of the ship was not over now and everyone could relax in clean quarters on a very comfortable bed. This was the first real mattress that I'd slept on since leaving the SS Coolidge almost four years ago. It felt great, and the food provided was also very good. Now our minds and bodies were truly at ease. No mattress for... you, you know when you gotta like sleep in the airport or whatever, <laughs> and you complain about it. Sure, that's a carpet. That's actually a pretty good deal. And you've got a sweatshirt that you've wrapped up in, and you put a little something under your head. A bathroom too, by the way. Yeah, there's a nice bathroom, yeah. right? There's not lice digging into your skin or <laughs> no. fleas eating at your. Yeah, no. Four years, four years on the dirt. Um, so now they get to they sail from there to Okinawa 
Once they're in Okinawa, they're doing a little bit of port time in Okinawa, getting some supplies. We're soon told that a strong typhoon was headed our way and the safest place for us was in the open water instead of the shallow bay. Before long, the island of Okinawa disappeared in the distance and night wasn't long in coming. So there's a big typhoon coming. They take, they get back on board this ship. They head out to sea. I must have fallen asleep eventually because about four o'clock in the morning I was awakened when the ship was rocked by a tremendous explosion. I could not imagine what it was because it was a lot worse by far than an exploding depth charge. Before I got completely dressed, I could hear sailors working their way down toward us, shouting everyone topside, everybody topside, and prepare to abandon ship. Everybody topside, hurry, hurry, hurry. And he goes through some of the details. We had hit a mine, which tore a hole in the side of our ship and flooded the engine room and in turn knocked out our power. There was a possibility that this ship might sink, which is why we were all ordered topside and given life preservers. We had all, we had to be ready to abandon ship if needed. Even if we abandoned ship, I doubt many of us would have survived. It was still dark, and on top of that, there was no possible way to lower the lifeboats with the ship lurching back and forth as it was. Once on deck, we had to tie ourselves to something to keep from getting thrown off. At least that is what I did. I found a place where I could sit down and also tie myself with the straps of my life preserver. By now, everyone was wet from the driving rain, and the wind whistled and howled. I thought to myself, is our misery ever going to end? When daylight came, I sort of wished it hadn't. What I saw was enough to scare a person to death. We were adrift in violent seas with 50-foot waves. You had to look almost straight up to see their crests when they came rolling toward you. They were much higher than the ship, especially when the ship was in a trough. So they had hit this mine. (laughs) Yeah. The engine room was flooded. They're still 200 miles from Okinawa. So this is, the captain, the captain comes on and is like confident, like, don't worry, we're only 200 miles from Okinawa. And he says um, to himself, hey, I can't swim 200 miles. I don't know about you, Captain. Back to the book. Besides severely damaging the ship, the exploding mine was responsible for the deaths of about 10 ex-prisoners and several sailors that were in the engine room. The ex-prisoners were on the deck when the mine went off. The explosion slung landing ladders that were hanging on the side of the ship up and over the railing like lethal whips. These men were apparently killed instantly. These were the same ladders that we had used to board the ship just a few days earlier. I felt depressed and I'm sure that the other men felt the same. These were men who were on their way home after their terribly long and hard ordeal and now they were dead. To get this far and still not make it was unbelievable. The Japs finally got them after all with their floating mine. I couldn't help but think of the poor parents and families back home. They had been notified that their son or husband or brother was on his way home. And you can imagine the joy that they felt. Now they had to be notified that they had been killed on the way home. Yeah, they eventually go from Okinawa to Manila, and then from Manila, they're waiting for a ship to go back to the States. One day, I finally saw my name on a list pinned to a bulletin board as I was leaving, as one leaving 
by ship for the states on such and such a date before long and he gets on the ship before long the last of the tropical islands disappeared in the distance we are now well out in the open ocean there was nothing to do but eat sleep and read and this would go on for several weeks my body tingled in the dark when I thought about what the future might bring sitting out on the deck with a cool breeze blowing and the ship gently rocking made me feel a little guilty for having it so good goes on they sail one day we spotted land and before long we were going under the Golden Gate Bridge and into San Francisco Bay we eventually docked at the same pier where we had taken off almost four years earlier at the dock many soldiers were met by their families and you could see the joy in their faces as they tightly embraced each other they had been to war and survived now they check into a hospital one of the first things that the doctor said when he saw me was you have hepatitis Uh, we were fed four large meals a day between meals nurses brought around ice cream candy and cookies for anyone that was still hungry they were obviously trying to fatten us up before we went home finally he gets on a hospital train car he heads for San Antonio Texas and then from there he was finally given a pass to go home and he's with a friend of his before we got to Lafayette I talked my friend into staying overnight in Crowley so we could clean up and be rested for our trip home the next day we spent the night at the rice hotel next morning I decided to get a haircut so I went to a barber shop nearby the barber started talking about the boys that had left to go to war some of whom had been killed he then talked about about a family that lived near Mawada that had two sons killed and another missing in action he said that the one missing in action later turned out to be a prisoner of war of the Japanese I was shocked beyond belief belief and I know I turned pale because I was positive he was talking about me and my brothers even though he did not give names this news came as a complete surprise but I had begun to suspect something before now in a letter or two that I sent home I inquired about Andrew and Stephen but never got any information concerning them when I received mail in return I thought maybe they had overlooked my questions or at worst or at worst maybe they had been wounded in the war I knew that Stephen was in the service but not Andrew you can imagine my grief when I found out they had both been killed before long I decided to call my sister Eunice to see if she could come and get me and of course she was overjoyed to hear my voice she said that she would be over as soon as she could before long she arrived and some of her first words that she said were Pat I'm afraid I have some bad news for you Pat was a nickname that my family calls me I knew what she was about to say so I stopped her and said I already know about my brothers I finally got to the farm my mother met me at the front gate she was crying which I expected and started to tell me about Andrew and Stephen I told her I knew everything and everything would be all right but she kept crying 
We hugged each other for a while, and finally I was able to shake hands with my father. He said one word, Pat. And I said one, Papa. And that was it. He was never much for talking, but I knew that he was glad to see me back. So after all that, he comes home and finds out that both of his brothers had been killed. His father says, hey, if you want to stay here and work at the farm and hang out, that's fine. And he tells his dad, no, he's going to go to college and finish his degree. And the GI Bill covers his cost of his college. And he says, there's not a great deal to do while home on leave. I walked in the woods a lot and visited our old swimming hole at the big cypress tree. I thought of the fun we used to have. And especially the mud fights that were so exciting. We were all grown up now, that is. The ones who were still alive. Such a change in five and one half years. I was given my discharge on February 17, 1946. I had been in the service for five and one half years, and those are years I shall never forget. When I was in the service, I always felt so very young because everyone else was older than me. Returning to college, I felt just the opposite. I felt so much older than most of my students, and of course, I was. One thing I never talked about while in college was my experience in the service. I would tell new friends that I was a veteran and had served overseas, but that was it. I was still abiding by the military's request not to tell about your POW experience to anyone. I may not have had trouble keeping my POW experiences to myself after my return, but one aspect of the experiences I did have trouble with and that was my dreams at night. Almost every night when I fell asleep, I found myself back in prison camp, and I would think to myself in my dream, how did this happen? I was sure I had been freed. It was heartbreaking to find that I was still a prisoner. It was just the reverse of what I had experienced in prison camp when I always dreamed I was free. When I woke up during the war, I found I was still a prisoner. But at least when I woke up as a civilian, I found that I was free. As good as this felt, it was still very disturbing mentally because these dreams lasted for about 10 years. For the first few years, I hated to go to sleep. But luckily, the dreams became less frequent. Even now, they are not completely gone. This dream tells me that in the recesses of my mind, I am still haunted by my participation and experiences during the Bataan Death March. It is something that I will undoubtedly be there always. But even though I may not be able to control my dreams... I long ago learned to live with my life 
as though none of this had ever happened. The dream that keeps coming back most often is one in which I find myself across a large body of water. I know that I must walk for miles and miles to return to where I want to be. In my mind, I know I have made this long, long walk before, and I know how difficult and time-consuming it will be. In my dream, I feel completely dejected because I wonder what could have happened to get me back to this place again. But in my dream, I start walking. I start walking. And I think that that right there, well, it wraps up the book, and I think that is a a very powerful message for everyone, for everyone, no matter what you face, no matter how bad it is going to be, when there is a challenge. And by a challenge, I mean anything in life, any, any challenge, anything that you're facing. The only way to overcome the challenges that you face is to start walking. Take that step. That is what James Bolick did. And the Bataan Death March, it was absolutely ruled a war war crime after the war. And the Japanese Lieutenant General, Homa Masaharu, who oversaw the march and oversaw the atrocities that took place during the march, he was put on trial and he was found guilty of war crimes and he was executed April 3rd, 1946, just outside of Manila. But James Bullock lived. He survived the death march. He survived three and a half years in absolutely wretched conditions. And James Bullock survives today. (laughs) He's still alive. And he lives in Louisiana still and as a matter of fact on the 25th of may of this year 2018 james bullock was awarded the congressional gold medal the highest civilian award for the accomplishments that he achieved in his life and that he has achieved in his life he's a retired geologist he's written 11 books including the one that I read from today a soldier's journal and actually the copy that I got which I got um, from a used bookstore he's got a note he signed it and his signature has a note and the note says simply Respect the flag. Respect the flag. 
and I definitely recommend you pick up a copy of the book and I also recommend that you take his advice every day no matter what you are facing get up and start walking and I think that's all I've got for tonight so echo Charles I guess at this point maybe since we're talking about walking you could you know tell us how to walk maybe not walk down the path a little bit sure a little bit of an easier walk yeah 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 a little bit that um there was another actually a few other books where, where this was like that where every every situation he yeah. kind of goes through you just get more and more exhausted like you're exhausted because yeah. you kind of think like okay it'll yeah. start to let up yeah you know and then it's cr- it's, it doesn't it's let madness. up and you're like oh my god it's madness. And then the storm. If you, and the, if you oh, put man. this like if you, it's if you put this into a movie, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah. You'd say, I don't know. Oh, yeah. they're really gonna have a storm. Oh, they're yeah. gonna hit a mine. Come on. Yeah. Exactly. Like I'm not buying that. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah, it literally does sound like something like someone would try to put in a movie to make yeah. it seem like oh his journey was so hard. Yeah. The real one, by the way. Yeah. And you kind of feel when he starts talking about like. For some reason, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm kind of hungry right now, but <laughs> when he's talking about his starving man, I was feeling the stuff. And then when, he, when he'd be like, yeah, when they s- switched. So to, to he, we're talking about a man that was lost 75 pounds of body weight. Who was he small wasn't to begin eating, with, by the way. He wasn't eating, and you haven't eaten in four hours, <laughs> and, and you're, you're throwing that out there. I'm not comparing, bro. I'm you saying, compared. No, Actually, no, no. You did. I'm not comparing. I'm saying I, I kind of felt. I felt his okay. his, his situation. And I, and I, oh, right. Man, that sounded. You bad. might want to edit yourself out on that, <laughs> that one. That sounded bad. Hey, I, I dig. I it. will say this. I will say this. You know what I'm looking forward to tonight is I'm gonna go. First of all, I've been traveling. I am tired. Sure. And tonight I'm gonna go enjoy my mattress and my bed yeah and i'm gonna think about that when i'm crawling i got a i got a pretty nice bed yeah. it's nothing crazy but no. it's nice better you than know, the floor you know what a california king is i do that's yes. the biggest bed you can get it's the longest yeah eastern king is wider really yeah, yeah. man we, me and my wife spent a lot of time trying to determine okay. well what's i've the got deal. the california king Dang, bro. Cool. and i'm gonna get in that thing tonight <laughs> with, the, that. with the okay. nice bed spread on it yeah. Just, so you felt you were feeling this pain a little hit a little bit extra too then when he was talking about like the floor and all this stuff and then he finally got on that mattress that he hadn't been you know no mattresses yeah, for I years. Think, I think if you, you compare if you compare anything that he literally anything in that book anything that he's talking about you can just say I have it good I don't care who you oh, are. Oh yeah. I got it so good. I'm just in, living in the lap Bro. of complete luxury. Bro. You you have bread. you know the part when they're like oh yeah and then they'd feed us uh, can, uh cookies and candy bars or yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. trying to, to fatten them up. When you were saying that, I was thinking tonight if if I want to and I'm considering it too still right now by the way, <laughs> I can go to the store on the way home by yeah. the way and just pick up as many candy bars as I yeah. want right now. Just candy bars, steaks, ice cream. Oh yeah, just li- you can pretty much any possible thing you could possibly imagine you can get it, yeah. it within. 
three within seven minutes of departing yeah. from this this podcast. This place right now. On your way to your California King on, bed. On, on by the way, the way. California King bed. Yeah, and the sheets, and you have the strength. Yeah. To put your blankets yeah. over yourself. Yeah, think about that That's one. cool, too. Yeah. It's nice uh, to be able to pull your blankets over yourself because yeah. you're not so malnutrition. Yeah, and when state. they and when the blankets are on you, that's that's kind of nice. Yeah, it doesn't you know, cause you pain. Yeah, it doesn't like suffocate because you're going to break your ribs or something like that. <sighs> yeah, bro. Big time. And let me, and yeah, but you were feeling it, though, I think. You know, oh, I, definitely. Okay, let me, okay, for, the, for the people out definitely there. Definitely feeling it. Okay, here's Jocko today, by the way. I, I witnessed his whole journey, well, more or less his whole journey, because I, I follow him on Instagram. So, what, 350 recorded wake-ups. So yeah, you probably yeah. woke up at, at, at the very Yeah, I think 345. Latest, 345. One went off at 345. Okay, so 345 wake-up. I, I was in Denver, Denver. And then, yeah, so I had to catch an early flight. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't, actually wasn't in Denver. I was in Boulder. So I had to get a car from Boulder is that what, one hour? That's one so hour ahead? I, I put one. Yeah, it's one hour ahead. Okay, so 2.50. Uh, okay. Wake oh, up. Oh, yeah, I didn't think okay. about that. You yeah, gave me a little yeah. extra credit. <laughs> no, no. You were taking away credit. Nonetheless, 2.50 wake up, travel, which, like I said earlier, to trick it. Okay, so travel from uh, Colorado to San Diego. To me, that's the day already. My mm-hmm. day's done. You know, <laughs> my work is done. Let's face it, I got to recover from that. That's me. Okay, you come home, you do what? A well, workout. Oh, on your way home, you prep a little yeah, bit. Well, I, yeah, I finished prep podcast, and then when I got home, the first thing I did when I got home was finish the prep of the podcast. Okay. I had about another hour to do. Okay, so and you shift that. mentally to a workout. Yeah. Okay, so so here's the thing. Where, you know, a workout, cool, workout. I've worked out after, bro, when I worked at the, at the nightclubs, I'd work out after a whole day and at like 3 yeah. in the morning. Right. And I trained jujitsu before work, you know. So hey, here's the thing, though: you make that mental shift where you're like, okay, you wake up at two fifty a.m. You travel. To me, mentally traveling just just kind of finishes me. You know, I gotta kind of recover. You know, unless I have something lingering or something like that. Okay, there's that. And then you still working, by the way. Shift into workout mode. Yeah. Still in the morning, by the way. Okay, so. Workout mode, you get your workout done, which is, um, we don't have to go into the details of it, but it's a mini condition, it's a conditioning circuit. Yeah, it pretty much took me, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I got, Basically a, I got the a good, most, solid little workout. If, if I, personally, anyway, I'm speaking for myself, if I'm going to skip a workout on a day where I don't feel like it, it's going to be one of those workouts. One of those ones that you're doing like, you know, burpees and this oh, and yeah, like okay. the hard, the junk ones. Oh, okay. The painful. Anyway. The one that gives you a little bit of a get some. Yeah. And then so, <laughs> little get some. Exactly right. And then you go to jujitsu. Yeah. Do a bunch of rounds. Yeah. A bunch yeah. of rounds. Uh, what, uh, over an hour of straight rolling. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you have breaks between yeah, rounds. Between so rounds. Like, yeah. But it was an hour. It was about an hour and 15 minutes of yeah. rolling. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big it. deal. That's way. That's like maybe two or three times the amount of, we'll say, quote unquote, normal rolling, depending on who you are. Okay. And with like Andy, I saw Taylor here. And, and, and in Taylor. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, all right. So it's not like you're going with some guy. No good. Maybe you'll rolls. catch a new girl or something there like this. No, no, no comfort rolls. Okay. Okay. No. okay. Here we go. Still on Jocko's schedule, by the way. Okay. And then now you got to now you got to do a podcast. Okay. So, guy, I'm trying to imagine your state of being in your mind. And then when he said the part. Actually, there's a bunch of parts when he's talking about on the ship and, you know, the breeze and the, the basically the rest parts. I think you were feeling that. 
what do you mean I was feeling it? Because you had that state, you have that state of like you you put in a lot of work, and now you you know you're kind of on the backside to the recovery portion of the day. Oh yeah, so yeah. So I think that part resonated with you. That's what I think. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Well, there it is. Boom. See, I know long explanation, but still. I guess so, but you got to remember that even like like you just described my day, but there's people out there that did five times more than what I did today. Yeah. There's there's a there's people everywhere that are getting after it super yeah more and than me. Some people every single day, yeah. you know. Day. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's absolutely true, and it it does, bro. This and there's a lot of books like this, man. Where the you know what kind of got me fired up was Dan Bat. Dan Bats here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he And the family. It's Angel, funny. Yeah. yeah, and the and his and his wife. And so Dan Bats a guy that's been like kind of in the game for since day 1. In he, the and, game. Yeah. And and so I knew him from social media. And as soon as I saw him, he's like, "Hey, I'm" and I was like, "Hey, hey, what's up, man?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> we good. were old school. Yeah. And but then, you know, him and his brother and and you know, Dan was in the Marine Corps and now he's a he's a government official still he's still a, a, a carries a gun for a living right and and I was you know he was all just like he's like oh you going to record right now and I was like yeah and he was pumped yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah. like yeah yeah he's good <laughs> you know, that gets me uh yeah I, I'm stoked when people are stoked he goes he goes what he goes are you covering a book can you tell me and I was like yeah I'm covering a soldier's journal I go it's awesome I go it's about a guy on the baton death march he goes I can't wait till Wednesday and I was like I'm gonna go in there and crush this thing yeah it so is. yeah Dan Bat thanks for coming up and uh, thanks for swinging by the gym yeah, big time. he yeah, didn't he come and get me to roll though unfortunately yeah oh wait yeah cuz he was on the, on the he was doing other he was doing no gi I was doing the gi the gi the gi yeah, it's, yeah, interesting. But what is that? I mean, I know we know, and you know. So as like, okay, I'm Dan Bat. I'm coming in. I see Jock for the first time. He's over there rolling with Andy and Taylor, by the yeah. way. And I'm over here doing no gi a little bit early in in the jujitsu career. Uh-huh. You know, Jock's over there training hardcore. Do I walk over there and try to roll with Jocko? That's the question. Yeah. Well, some people do. Some people don't. Overall, it's like, yeah. You, if I were to ask you that, you'd be like, yeah, come roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like I said, if I'm Dan Bat, it's my first time. At, at victory, I see you over there. Do I do that? Yeah, maybe I overestimated the. I feel like I know him pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do. And, yeah. and the thing and is, he, he probably said feels he probably feels like he knows us real well. He came up. He was like my my other friend Anthony. He he was like, oh yeah, that guy. He's 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 one from Buffalo, um, jujitsu and all this stuff. His name's Dan. I was like, oh yeah, cool, Dan. I meet him. I was like, hey, Dan, because I didn't draw. I didn't make the connection that oh, okay. it's Dan Bat. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. say it's Dan Bat because yeah. we all know we've yeah, yeah. known Dan Bat from, from the beginning. Because For whatever, maybe I'm not looking at his pictures close enough or whatever, but um, yeah, when you were like, yeah, Dan Bat, I was like, oh, this is Dan Bat. Oh, and then I'm like cruising with him, you know? Then you're like, all he's in a the friend. game. Check. Anyway, right. Dan Bat is on the path. But. Still on the yeah, path. Yeah, way on the path. He's way Even on the path. Even more on the path. Yep. Big time. And Ooh. so are we. And we can talk about some stuff to uh, help support the path. And people's path. Support. You understand? All right. First, we're going to talk about Origin. So, Origin. Origin is the company. The company. This is where you get your gi. When you're on jujitsu, okay, we're going to stay on jujitsu real quick. So, one, you take jujitsu, you need a gi. Because you're doing gi and no gi. Yes, that's a good idea. No one's going to be mad at, if, at you if you just do gi or if you just do no gi. Did you but, say everyone's going to be mad no, at you? No one's going to oh, be okay. mad at you. But as a strong recommendation, do both. Yeah. So when you do both, you need a gi. Origin gi. 
This is why you get an origin gi. No other gi. Don't get any more any other gi. You don't have to. No. I have other gis from before origin. You still have them? Yeah. Well, they're in my laundry room. In fact, I got scolded from my wife. Mm. Why are those gis up there? They've yeah. been up there for your wife's how long? In the, your wife's in the game. She's in She's the like, game. get rid of them non-origin yeah. gis. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to wear them. They're not welcome. You, you're anymore. legitimately not going to wear them. Legitimately not going to wear so them. So there's no point in having them. Yeah. It's true. Good Goodwill. Yeah. Yeah, goodwill or even, you know, bring it to, I don't know. You know what's good? Sh- bring it to your academy and then they can use those as loaner, loaner geese. Yep. yep. Exactly. There right. you go. That's so what yeah, the old geese. So, and rash The world needs well. loaner geese too. That is true. So. Yeah. And then, yeah, in the meantime, before people get an origin. Yeah. And then Makes get, sense. Yeah. But yeah, all made in America. From the beginnings of the birth of the gi. Is there a birth of the gi? <laughs> Not really, Not but we'll really, go yeah. with it. Okay, well, the cotton is grown in America. How the about that? Cotton. That's how early yeah. on the made in America situation commences. Anyway, um, all made in America and by Pete and his team who know about jujitsu, black belt yes. and jujitsu in the game of jujitsu from yeah. day one. So he knows all about it, make the connection. That's why that's why they're the best geese yeah. overall, right there. Boom, that's it. They also make rash guards as well. So gi, no gi, boom, gi, rash guard. Rash guards, and you can get all kinds of stuff on there too. T-shirts. Um, they may have shorts now. Do you have a pair of those shorts yet? Bro, no, I don't. I don't and either, but I'm going to get <laughs> me some. You know what? I'm just, I was going to like send both of them a text group text a group text and be like hey i'm looking <laughs> we're, outside we're the door here. you know what i mean like oh i'm getting other mail no shorts but then again the origin the immersion camp's coming up i'm sure it's a yeah. thing where the boom and actually that makes more sense less packing there okay you know what i'm saying well but no, i'm still not have, happy about it i'm you know i'm, I'm with you on that one not happy about but, it so yeah some uh, other stuff than than just jujitsu stuff yes beyond jujitsu yeah beyond jiu-jitsu. and it's and good. really the shorts are starting to get into like because they're not even they're not for training. They're yeah. just for straight up wearing. Yeah. Just for wearing around. Plus, there's supplements on there too. Uh, we got joint warfare, which for is good joints. for your joints. Sure. We got krill oil, which is also good for your joints. Yeah. Was that the Was that the supplement that pushed you over the edge? What do you mean over the edge? That got you to start using supplements, krill oil. <sighs> yes. Okay. I uh, so. uh, and that was like a what do you call it? It was like a gateway supplement. Gateway well, supplement. actually, you know what? I don't know if that in and of itself was the gateway. So I think you were essentially the influence gateway uh, entity, if you will. Right, but that was the one where you, when you started taking it, and you were like, "Oh, this yeah. actually works," yeah. and yeah. so I'm going to continue. And then, then when I was saying, you know what, I got something called joint warfare, yeah. and then you're like, "I'm going to start cracking down some yeah, of that," too. And, and then <laughs> you got your arm healed up, and now you're a believer. <laughs> well, the, and the and the thing about both of those things is, okay, glucosamine chondroitin is in joint warfare. Right. It has other yes, other yes. good stuff and stuff like that, but that was kind of the deal. it has in there, which is actually as big of a deal as the other two things that you just mentioned. Yeah, as it turns out. Sure. Yeah. I didn't know this at the time. So you're like, yeah, joint warfare, krill oil, all this stuff. And these are things that I heard about before. And I was like, cool, but, you know, in the hey, game. man, I don't, I don't need to take supplements. You just, you know, eat maybe, right and all this maybe. stuff. We wouldn't have multiple torn biceps <laughs> if we took more <laughs> joint warfare. Maybe. Anyways, we got that. We got discipline, which is good for... Just good for mission, life, mission, getting after it. Yeah, Brian was explaining to me that it helps you. Uh, hey, look, I'm going to get terminology wrong, 
but because I'm doing this off of memory, but it's like uh, adaptogens or something. Basically, it helps you manage any stress <laughs> that comes to you. Look at you. you see what I'm saying? Adaptogens. Yeah, like that. I heard that, that sounds word before. Good. I liked it. Anyway, that sounds good. It helps you manage stress, um, and that goes for like physical and mental stress. So remember when? I, remember when I was telling you? Yeah, it was like last time or the time with Dean or whatever. When I was saying, when I took the three scoops, I felt like I could just deal with stuff better. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what it was. I like my patience the adaptogens was <laughs> were in the house. <laughs> <laughs> the adaptogens were the in the house, and there it is. The so Brian totally explained it. So I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, see what I'm saying. See, that's a little subtle. I think. That that's a little subtle thing that, you know how it's like, yeah, I can remember words quicker and like all this stuff. Good, man. Good. And I You'd rather it. have the adaptive <laughs> for stress. I hear you. I'm not saying I'd rather or not rather. I'm saying that's part that I think anyway, we all might kind of disregard, you know. Yeah. You know, it's basically the opposite of having, you know, when you're like, uh, what do you call it? When you're irritable. You know that? Yeah. Okay. So consider when you're irritable. Not I'm not gonna say you're gonna behave a certain way. Some people do though. When they're irritable, they're shorter. They have shorter temper. Oh yeah. They you know when things don't go their oh, way. Yeah. You know. When I, when I I consider that to be a weakness. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I consider that to be a weakness. Okay. So consider that. Like when I snap at someone. <laughs> yes. Which I, which I I like rarely snap at someone. Yeah. Because I consider I don't know when I started thinking that way. Yeah. Like, hey, just snapping at someone is just when I, if I snap at you, bro, there's you did yeah. something really jacked up. Or maybe you're just super duper irritable. Yeah. I don't, In general, I think you're right, though. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm literally sitting here trying to figure out the last time I felt legitimately. Well, you know what? It'll be something. It'll. You know what? You know what bothers me? What? It bothers me if I'm trying to work mm-hmm. and people want to talk to me about stuff. <laughs> So this is more of a, a home life scenario. Yeah. And normally I schedule my situations that everyone's asleep or yeah. I'm separated. But sometimes people want to interact. Oh, yeah. And and when I'm doing my work, you know, and, and I have a, something where, with, with my wife where, you know, you've seen the movie The Shining, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, I have. I'll, be, I'll be sitting there and I'll be working. I'm like, when you hear this noise. <laughs> When you hear that, it means I'm typing. That is my typewriter. <laughs> and that means I'm trying to work. Yeah. And if you hear me working, then don't. And she starts laughing. Yeah. So I, oh, I, throw, well. I throw a little Jack Nicholson. Sure. And she realizes that I'm trying to do what I do. Well, I will Just say work. that that's. Podcast prep. Write yeah. books. Whatever. Yeah. Fully. You get down. And I dig it. But. That's not really you snapping, though, is it? No, That's no, no, like no, no, a no. friendly version but, of saying, hey. It is my way of, of let's say, projecting my frustration yeah. into a good, positive, yeah. humorous thing that releases the tension and gets the message across. Remember earlier yep. today we were talking about getting the message across without <laughs> doing collateral damage? Yes. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You so I just it. throw on a little bit of that when you hear this. Yeah. Well, that actually, that's good. Because, man, I was talking, and I don't want to deviate too much, but... What talking, do you mean? We're talking uh, about I, a completely I, different <laughs> subject. We've deviated so far, there's not even... I don't even know where we came it, from. It has to do with getting the message across, right? You can uh-huh. have the greatest info in the world, uh-huh. the most important info in the world, but if you can't get across, right? Important. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, man, and for super important, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> but here's the thing about information and what you say and how you say. It's like all this. It, it has to land. 
you know okay so you can start throwing out info and but if it doesn't land you might as well not have said nothing In okay fact, so what just happened the with time, the appended whatever you were talking what? about earlier with what? the with the discipline you were talking about the oh yeah the adaptogens okay, adaptogens, okay. okay that's yeah. a whole nother thing we're that's on a different a subject thing. right now we'll go back to the how did that land I, I, man you, you were talking about you being jack nicholson and all this stuff okay okay actually back to the point back to the point okay, okay so the adaptogens it's the opposite of being irritable that's what I felt. Oh, okay. And I think when we think about like discipline and, you know, good nootropic health, brain health, all this stuff, we think about like remembering words and being sharper and quicker, but we don't think about like the opposite of being irritable. I don't know if there's, okay. is there a word for the opposite of irritable? Because it's not the kind of, oh, like it's just, okay, I'm cruising. It's not that feeling. It's more like- The opposite of irritable I can, cruising? No. <laughs> no. No. All right. Speaking of information, why don't you give us yeah. some information about mulk so we can move on? Okay. Well, take the don't 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 slip on the discipline. Anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah, mulk. Don't slip on okay, that. Okay, mulk. Here's mulk. Because you'll be the opposite of irritable. If That's you, a good tagline. We yeah. should use that. The opposite of irritable. <laughs> yeah, man. It works. It works for me. Keep in mind when you're irritable, that's not a good feeling. No. Most of us, if we don't get like enough sleep, or or sometimes, well, I guess it depends on who you're. But some people, when they get hangry. That's what mm. that is. That's all that is. Not a good feeling. Feel the opposite of that. It is a good feeling. See what I'm saying? Check. Just simple math. Check. Anyway, mulk. Okay, mulk. If you want some additional protein, this is a good way to get it. Can you imagine? You remember how he was talking about if he had seen movies while he was in prison camp, he would have tried to break out and go. Yeah. If you were in that situation and you had had mulk before you went in, <laughs> that would be horrible because you'd be thinking about yeah. not only like yep. how Dreaming just about filling it is and how yeah. good it is, how tasty it is. <laughs> it's like you're stuck yep. there and you can't have it. That happened to me yesterday when I was on my trip. Oh, dang, you didn't bring the mulk. I didn't bring mulk, and I need to figure that situation out a little bit better. But, because that's a just, and I do, I do some, I've branched out a little bit. I normally always did two scoops of mulk in mm-hmm. big, glass of milk mm-hmm. and now I'm kind of doing little hitters little hitters well there's still there's still one full scoop yeah. I haven't gone below I haven't done just like a straight-up shot yeah that's but kinda, I've been doing okay. little hitters just one just one scoop and, and, and what's the philosophy behind you know like what, what? you know why cuz I I'm so full when I get done with milk like this morning when I got home since I didn't have milk on my trip when I got home before I started record before I started prep, prepping for the podcast I had a little hitter of milk which mm. I, by the way I took hitter that whole concept of using the word hitter from sure. Theo Vaughn <laughs> so, Same definition. So, so the, yeah, like a popper. I think he uses it for everything. Like things can just be a hitter. Oh, so I, a little, yeah, I have yeah. a little hitter. What little one scoop hitter? Yeah, <laughs> little yeah. one scoop hitter. <laughs> that's what All I right. do. Boom! There you go. That of that is odd. No, I don't want to say that's odd. So it's the opposite. There's of something mine. you have to be careful of if you think in the future you may be completely in a situation where you can't have milk. Maybe it's better to never have it. Yeah, so you don't have don't to even, always think yeah. about it forever. Yeah, you, like you can't you can't miss what you don't know. Yeah, kind of yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. All right, yeah, I'm cool. going. I'm going the opposite direction. I'm going. I'm making them bigger, just bigger, like glass. Oh, like, and really? you know what's weird? So I okay, I went to sleep kind of early, which is like, I'm not. 
you know some people that they prefer to go sleep hungry because it's like you know whatever their philosophy yeah. is i'd prefer not to go sleep hungry so i i ate, I ate dinner and then i stayed up a couple hours and i'm like oh I either eat right now when I'm not really hungry or risk being hungry at some point very soon. So what I, don't I did think is you do well in prison camp, <laughs> yeah, bro. No, no. that would not work it, out. It well would for be you. a struggle for me for sure. Yeah. Nonetheless, I take the milk, three scoops. Oh God! Add peanut butter, man. I don't know why. I, I, I mean, add I do know butter, why. Two peanut butter skull to two, the mint. Oh, to the mint. Bro, I'm, I'm total double dipping, huh? You're going crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It just it, the thing is, I know how the. Experience, I don't even like the sound of that bro, taste, bro. It's good for real. <laughs> Do it, taste that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna uh, sound good, nonetheless, but. I, I've been doing it, and it's the kind where it's like, what? Well, I already know how it tastes. Like, why would I not even do that? Okay. You know well, saying? like I've said it, and you actually, I said, don't cross the streams like Ghostbusters, and you said that's how they won. Yes. So maybe you got to cross the yeah. the peanut butter and the mint. I don't know. Winnie I'm not. I'm, I don't even think I'm going to try it. All right, that's up to you. And maybe it's one of those things. If I try it, then I'll have to carry around both types all the time for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, or you so just mix them. That one. You pour. You mix them up. Oh man. Right. That's up to you. Anyway, hey, mulk how you want to mulk. Mulk up, bulk yeah. up. That's that's good, right? That rhymes. Yeah. Bulk up, bulk up. Anyway, so so I so I hit it. It's the big, you know, our, our oh, cups. Oh, you got the hitter. No, I, I hit it. So technically, <laughs> it maybe it was a hitter, but it was huge, huge hitter, pounder. Um, oh, you got one of those big hitters. Boom, huge one, huge one. Pounded it, no problem. Went How much sleep. milk is going to get consumed at the immersion camp, you think? I think I it's going to be a lot. Well, consider myself alone. I mean, man, I'm on the milk train big time, so that's every day. Yeah. Well, how many lot. scoops, while we're at Immersion Camp, how many scoops of milk will you consume <laughs> per day? Well, per day, I don't know. I'd just say six minimum because every day. <laughs> well, you figure. I'm just saying. That's crazy. Well, you know, I, as much juice is going on, yeah, six, two scoops Dang. per one, two, three. I yeah. could see maybe doing four for me. Yeah. Maybe two in the morning, maybe two in the afternoon. Maybe maybe have a one more hitter in the middle somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> you got to have a little bit. Check. Nonetheless, that's small. Good good protein, and it tastes good. See, and that's the thing. Well, if you do it as, like, someone was texting me, oh, can you do it as a meal replacement? Can you do this meal program? And the day before I got that text, Pete was saying, I said something, I forget what it was, and he said, ha ha, yeah, you can use it as a meal replacement. Well, yeah, cat. breakfast, milk, and dinner. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why I was texting Pete. Um, and then, so yeah, so when you do it as a meal replacement, it's like, it's not the meal, it's like a dessert as a meal replacement. Yeah, it's both. You know what I'm saying? So it's like the treat, you look forward to that one. Unless it's good. good to go. Get all this at originmain.com. That's where you can get all this stuff. Cool website. Check. I would talk about the immersion camp, but it's sold out. Bummer. Here's the thing, too. I was talking to Andy Burke mm-hmm. about this. Not Dave Burke. Good deal, Dave? Good deal, Dave. <laughs> Not good deal, Dave. Andy Burke. No relation. <clears throat> and we're talking about like, okay, so it's one thing to be like, hey, we're getting kind of full. We'll just get more mats. But then we're now we're talking about the camp yeah. being full. Yeah. So it's we're we're full. Yeah, we're full. Pulled out. Can't do it unless maybe like you, you bring your tent or something like that. Maybe. Mm. Nonetheless, sold out. So yeah, maybe next year. There it is. All origin stuff. Good way to support as well. Shifting gears. Jocko is a store. It's called Jocko Store. So you go to jockostore.com. This is where you can get shirts, hoodies, tank tops, some rash guards, more rash guards. Um, good way to support, like I said, this is where if you want to represent, 
discipline equals freedom. Just the general concepts and how should I say, uh, philosophies of the game. Overall deathcore. Yeah. <laughs> just overall just overall if you want to represent that's where you get it jockostore.com got some new designs on there I, I was I was gonna send out like an email to everybody like mm-hmm. that sign out for the email email list it's been a few months so mm-hmm. might as well so I'll probably send out something just to indicate hey we got some new stuff boom there it is if you want it yeah if you want yeah. it boom because a lot of times it's like it's not like people are just gonna be going Jocko store every day boom 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 you know no there's Especially no reason to do that not, when you don't put new stuff up very often so well, why would they do that well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just say there's no uh, uh, po- uh strong reason to do it sure. so hey i'll send an email boom let them know anyway yeah jockostore.com good way to support also subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already i know it seems obvious but I think it is obvious. It's obvious. It's real Subscribe. obvious. But just you, to let just to let you know, if you just don't know. so you know, they're listening right now. Yeah. So likely they they subscribed. Yeah, that's true. And when you're subscribing to that, also there's a Warrior Kid podcast. So if you got kids between the ages of four and forty four, <laughs> they can get something out of the Warrior Kid podcast. Yep. And you can subscribe to that. You can also subscribe to YouTube. And we're we're discussing today making some some these are these are not even these are in different situation What I briefed you on today about what we're gonna make those are a different thing. They're a different thing. They're a different They're not enhanced videos. They're not excerpts. They're a different specific thing for specific Lessons learned specific topics that I've discovered that I need to cover and I think the best way to cover them is through video medium So we're gonna do that and they will be specific to YouTube. Actually, they will be very specific to YouTube because yeah. they're both involve graphics. Uh, you know, yeah. m- they they involve, yeah, me explaining something, utilizing graphics. Yeah, yeah. Is that which, the right word? Graphics for what I was yeah, doing. Yeah, charts, I, I, I charts, diagrams, diagrams, if you will. Things. You know, yeah, yeah. But this maneuvers. Is, yeah, and this is it was funny. It's like you just say it like it's like yeah, it'll be a cool addition to the thing. This like what you what you, we talked about, what mm. you explained, is if I would have known this, it's almost like the secret to life. <laughs> it it and is I'm important. Not joking. No, I know, I know. It's a, so we'll put it. We get this. This means we're gonna have to put it together. Maybe we could do. Could we do it while we're in Maine or something? Yeah. It, it's not gonna. I don't want to. I don't want to get crazy with it. I just want right. to put the word out there. I need a dry erase board. I need to explain it. I'll think through it a couple times, and yeah. then I'll put it out there because yeah. it will help. It will definitely help. Yeah. 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 Fully. And both wh- those. Both those topics. There's two topics that need to come out, yeah. and I'll discuss both of them. We'll put it on the YouTube, and then and then people can get them. Yeah. So okay. subs- so well, subscribe YouTube. to the YouTube channel for that. It the channel is called Jocko Podcast. Yeah. And. Also, when I said subscribe, that's to the audio, you know, cause, so YouTube's video, the audio is like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all these oh, stuff. Okay, Wherever yeah. you listen to podcasts, but I know it seems obvious, but I might as well throw it in there just in case. Cool. Maybe someone's new to podcasting in general. Okay. You just never know. I'm just, just going to be quiet. It's so just a fun. <laughs> 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 also, also, also <clears throat> on it. So on it.com slash Jocko, by the way, you get 10% off of what? What do we get 10%? Yeah, this is what. <clears throat> so. Where 
if you want to vary up your workout, I know I said it before, but vary up your workout, kettlebell stuff, uh, battle ropes stuff. I got some rings. Are you bringing your rings to Maine? Yes. Yeah, me too. I'm bringing mine. Cool. Um, this is where you get it. Go on it.com slash Jocko. Really good stuff on there. Good info as well. So if you're new to certain types of workouts, get the info first. You can enter it. You can enter into that workout situation, educated, keep yourself safe, and, you know, boom, get the results without all the injuries. See what I'm saying? Also, we made a spoken word, spoken word. Album. Album. Sure. With tracks. And it's it's me. Actually, we made it, but it's me talking. Sure. And it's me just telling you not to be weak today, but to go doing what you're supposed to do. And we're going to make another one of those, working on it now, gathering the topics. So if you have topics for psychological warfare, then you can put them on the social media thing and I'll get them we will assess if they are important topics or if they're important topics either way yes we'll we'll figure it out so basically if you're not struggling but yeah if you're like kind of struggling something if you have moments of weakness what is it what scenario are you in what are you weak with yeah my sister used to say uh White rice is like her weakness. Oh, see what I'm saying white rice. So I'm gonna make a psychological warfare that says the white rice that you're looking if at right now. If she was gonna put it to say, if she was gonna, it enter- is 100 sugar once it enters your stomach. Walk away, <laughs> walk away from the white rice now. Actually, that's what you that kind of would because she said late at night. This was a long time ago, by the way. She said late at night. So yeah, she were to play it, and you're like, walk away. She's like, She'd be walking away. See, bro. that's all it is. See, that's how it starts. There Psychological warfare. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, MP3 platforms, blah, blah, blah. Jocko White Tea. <laughs> mm-hmm. That you can get in a can, or you can get it in a tea bag, sure. and you can get both those from Amazon. That's where they're at. So if you want to be able to deadlift no less than 8,000 pounds, 100% guaranteed, all you have to do is drink Jocko White Tea. You don't have to work out even. You don't even have no. to lift weights. You just yeah. drink it, and then you can deadlift 8,000 pounds. Don't worry. Yeah. It's no problem. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, books. Yeah. I wrote some books. I wrote some kid books, actually. Yeah. Way of the Worried Kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, That's the first one. And Way of the... Is the second... Okay, the second one is Mark's Mission. The second one, But is yes. it called Way of the Warrior Kid? Mark? Mark's Mission? I, I'm not sure. Let's look at the cover. It does say Way of the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission. So it is. It's Way of the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission. I think I should put a big one and two on them so that it's more clear. The next book, the next one that comes out, it will say three on it. Yeah, good idea because they are kind of essentially the whole story and even the lessons, by the way, are chronological. For sure. See what I'm saying? So like the first one, the lessons and the struggles and the problems or whatever are nine-year-old problems right yeah. i mean give or take you know they're like a certain yeah. age ten-year-old type problems, yeah. problems and, the next and then they ask so they get a little bit more sophisticated yeah. you know yeah. and That's then the next happening. one more and more so it's kind of chrono- chronological and not to mention the story as well so makes makes sense Put yeah one, two, do it three. that way and that's if you want your kids to actually get after it straight up i yeah. get i get the best feedback from those books yeah 
So yeah, I could see why. I mean, shoot, I'm one of those people who's giving you the feedback because it's very well, very well done. I, very <coughs> my well daughter done. Thank is you. Thank yeah, you. very well. Yeah, as a Thank book, uh, what do you what do you call critic? C- critic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone critic. who who has <laughs> who has <laughs> read a book before. Um, you know, hey, it's good. It's a good book. I have it as like just an, a running theme. You yeah. know, like I just keep reading the book. I just keep reading both of them. Boom, 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 boom. That's yeah. how. So it becomes the ethos. That's why your daughter. Which I primarily see your daughter more. She's like, you know, she gets after it. She, yeah, she does get after it. The jits. Constant work, though, man. Oh, That's yeah, all. of course. This is, this is big help. Of course. Huge help, of by course. the way. Also, discipline equals freedom field manual. Who would have thought yeah. that that book would be popular? That people would be into it? That's what's cool. Yeah. You You wouldn't think. See, most people don't think there's people that really want to get after it yeah and no and, but they do yeah and, I, here, and they don't know how yeah and when you think about it it's gonna start to it kind of makes sense really when you just like okay so it's field manual right you have mm. a manual a manual because that's a lot of times that's why people don't do stuff oh, like, they don't know how to do it they don't know how and if i do stuff, and then i gotta look into it then i keep you there know you looking go. into it. i wish i just had a manual i wish i had a manual for life how about that I wish I had a manual for parenting i wish i had a manual for life i, had, I wish i had a manual for you know a bunch of other stuff but if you want to what get after it, whatever you want to call it, right? You got a manual. You want to stay disciplined, and you want freedom directly from that discipline. Boom! You got a manual right here. There you go. There uh, you go. Also, extreme ownership, which is the first book that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. It takes the combat principles that we learned on the battlefield and teaches you and shows you how you can apply them to your business and to your life. And then we got a follow-on book to that coming out September 25th, The Dichotomy of Leadership. You can pre-order it right now, so that way the publishers who are pessimistic, that's that's how publishers are, they're just pessimistic. Because yeah. for them, they don't really care if you get if you don't get the book right when it comes out, they're gonna make their their money either way. But yeah. when, you, when the book comes out and you order it the day it comes out, and then it takes nine days to get to you because because they had to reprint them because they yeah. ran out but i guess they're cons- i shouldn't say they're conservative yeah, they're cons- yeah. they're being all conservative <laughs> well, you know, we're just not sure and we don't want to spend a money on money on storage if these things and then you're gonna have to wait to get your copies don't do that, don't do that. you can pre-order it and leif and i just did a podcast on what it's about that's podcast number 138 if you haven't heard that one yet also speaking of leif speaking of me we have a leadership consulting company and it's not just me and Leif, it's also JP Donnell, Dave Burke, Flynn Cochran, and also Mike Sorelli. And we come to your company and we'll help you with your leadership. We solve problems through leadership. Also, if you want one of us to just come speak at your company, don't call a speaking agency. Yeah. You don't need to call a speaking agency. You don't need to call coolspeakers.com. <laughs> no, go to mm-hmm. echelonfront.com and and get the information there, give the give the info, and you, that's how you get to us. Some people Otherwise, call me, by the way, or email me. Yeah, and sometimes. then you pass it on to Echelon yeah. Front. Info Which is at Echelon. Cool. Like you you like people. get a little little little. You like to get in the game. Info <laughs> at echelonfront.com if you want to just email straight. Also, the muster zero zero six San Francisco California seventeenth and eighteenth. It's probably going to sell out pretty soon. The registration for that is at extremeownership.com, and also there's registration for. The roll call, roll call 001, which is for current uniformed personnel. So military, law enforcement, border patrol, firefighters, paramedics, other first responders. We put together the roll call 
because you lead in dynamic situations we want to do something a little bit cheaper a little bit shorter so you could get to it it's september 21st dallas texas and come on down to that finally we have ef overwatch connecting spec ops and combat aviation folks from the military to companies that need leaders need tested leaders so we've got great leaders out there that we know from our communities and now we've got companies that we know from echelon front and we are bringing them together so efoverwatch.com if you want to if you're either someone that wants to hire a badass leader or if you're a badass leader that is retiring or getting out from your military service get on there and fill out that information and until we do see you at the muster or at the roll call or at the immersion camp if you want to cruise with us kind of hard on the interwebs we are there we are on Instagram Twitter and on that face Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And finally, thanks to all the military personnel that are listening. As you defend our great nation from threats around the world, thank you for standing the watch. And here in America, to the police, to law enforcement, to firefighters, to border patrol, paramedics, first responders, thanks to you all as well for standing the watch here at home and keeping us safe. And thanks to everyone for listening and supporting. And I know sometimes it can be hard to listen to stories from atrocities like the Bataan Death March. I know that. But in listening, remember. Remember that evil does exist. Remember those that died standing up against that evil. And remember that even in the most wretched times, when you face darkness yourself, no matter how bad things get, remember. Remember not to stop. Remember not to pause. Remember not to hesitate. Remember to put one foot in front of the other take that first step and start walking and until next time this is echo and jocko out